My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is the CEO and founder of New Christendom Press, the co-host of The King's Hall, and the host of the Hard Men podcast. Please welcome the second guest of Reformation May, Eric Kahn. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Men do hard things. That's the refrain of the red pill manosphere space, isn't it? Along with no one cares work harder. You know, those two chestnuts. But when it comes to the hard thing doing and the things you should work harder at while no one is caring, those activities often fall into the category of what we might call labor. Lifting heavy, working late, sweating more, exerting yourself, stuff like that. But sometimes, and hear me out, being a man requires more than action. It requires talking. Yes, yes, I know, you let your actions speak for you, and they speak louder than words. But there's a problem. Actions can often be misinterpreted unless we communicate our intentions. Keyword, communicate. Again, talking. Talking happens in the form of conversation, which can be between two or more people. A man is one of two kinds of people, the other being a woman. So therefore, men engage in conversation also. You might have been in one at some point. Pretty sure I've been in one or two as well. And sometimes those conversations can be hard. They can involve sharing hurt feelings, buried secrets, unknown judgments, constructive criticism, and more. But when you mention to the men do hard things crowd, that the category of hard things can also mean having hard conversations, suddenly they go silent or claim that talking isn't manly. If you believe that, I challenge you to never watch a movie again or read a work of literature. Because if you do those things, you might notice that the heroes talk. Sometimes they sing, dance, and give rousing speeches. In fact, I even have it on good authority that the heroes of great literature also have emotions and cry but don't get me started on that. In fact, talking is one of the hardest things that some men can do. I am not one of those men. Talking comes easy to me, but I can relate to that fear because some forms of talking scare even me, and they're the same forms of talking that scare everyone. The sharing of hard truths spoken in love and often with a bit of grief and pain. Do men do these hard things too? They need to. Our culture is dying not just because we lack men of action, though that is also true, but because we lack men willing to speak the truth, whatever the cost. This doesn't need to be on stage. This can be in our lives, to our families, our spouses, our friends, our co-workers, our bosses, and even the everyday people around us. I have known men who faced down bullets in warfare who were afraid to say something they knew to be true to a loved one. Our culture is dying not because we lack men willing and able to face down physical death, but because we lack men willing and able 
to face down relational, social, professional, and even economic death for the truth. And that's it. I could run that out to the highest levels of media, culture, and influence. Successful men who have impacted us all, but who pulled back at the decisive point of truth. To articulate what I mean, I'd like to share with you a quote that is often misattributed to Martin Luther, but that is actually from the author Elizabeth Rundle Charles. She wrote, It is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our fidelity. It is to confess we are called, not merely to profess. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. American society is dying for lack of individuals like this, but thankfully there are men who give me hope. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Eric Kahn, and he's a warrior with the truth, though not only with the truth. He's the host of two podcasts that I listen to, and who I'm honored to often be mentioned alongside, the Hard Men podcast and the King's Hall, which I regard as among the best in the business. He's also the CEO of New Christendom Press, a new Christian publishing house with cathedral-sized aims. But most recently, he's become a Twitter bomb thrower, launching scorching tweets that have gone, in the words of Sovereign Bra, nuclear viral for their controversial takes, one of which racked up 16 million views. Here, I'll read it to you. Make sure you're sitting down. Get ready to clutch your pearls. Have a glass of water nearby for Aunt Betty and her fainting spells. And if you're listening in your bedroom, maybe turn the lights off and get under the covers so no one sees you. Here we go. Acceptable occasions to wear yoga pants. Alone in your house with your husband. Working out alone in your private gym while your husband watches you. The end. No public venues, not social media. Everyone okay? That was a close one. I'll leave you to speculate about other reasons why this one did such big numbers, but what's revealing to me about it is that it shows what gods truly cannot be questioned in our day and age. The right for women to do, say, and wear whatever they want. And that is the original reason why I wanted to have Eric on this podcast, because he, along with Pastor Joel Webin and others, has begun speaking up forcefully about the idolatry of the feminine, professing the simple truth that women sin. And that constitutes speaking truth to power. In this case, the social power held by women who will not be told what to do, not by God, and especially not by men. But I believe that's where the battle will rage. That is straight into the heart of the storm. It's an important contest for the great reconciliation because women need to hear the truth of the gospel just as men do, and where the loyalty of soldiers will be proved. Many men have been steady on the battlefield, but have flinched at that essential point. Eric's yoga pants tweet shows why. Because of those 16 million views, only 2,800 people liked it, and there were 8,000 comments and 3,400 retweets. Not quite Rollo Tomasi vasectomy numbers, but that's a heck of a ratio, because that's where the battle will rage. That is straight into the heart of the storm. Eric is one of the men leading us there, which is why I was thrilled to have him on the podcast. And this conversation didn't disappoint. 
When we started talking, we planned on 90 minutes. We ended up going for more than three hours, covering topics that absolutely need to be discussed for men and women in the church. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're listening. In our conversation, we discussed women's sexual power, men and women being discipled by pornography, why pastors are men, having courage in cultural insanity, Christian cultural and political theology, why courage is contagious, the generational church divide, and finally, holding women accountable for their sins. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Almost three years of work on the show is paying off in a major way, praise God, and thank you for being a part of it. Please continue to leave five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, plus five-star ratings on Spotify, and share this episode with a friend so the Renaissance can reach more men and women. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee. Pastor Brandon Lansdowne has been hand-roasting beans for 14 years, honing his craft for a moment like this. Because it's time for Christians and their churches to start sourcing their coffee from places other than woke corporations who work against our values, and it's also time for us to begin supporting Christian-owned businesses, creating godly prosperity for families and the kingdom. Because this is Reformation May, you can enjoy Episode 2 of my five-part series, Will Reforms His Coffee, playing in the middle of this episode. I'm learning to make pour-over coffee, which I'm told is how Calvin did it. So you can sip along with me by going to ReformationCoffee.com and entering the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. We're also counting down to the second edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series coming up on Saturday, June 3rd with a lineup of all-female speakers discipling women in biblical femininity and the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman. Featuring Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist, Dear Sister, Soli Oli, Bernardine Bluntley, Martine DeLuna, Issa Ryan, and the one and only Allison Armstrong. I'm also working on my opening remarks, and I'll give you a little hint. If you hate the song Labor, I'm going to give you some ammunition you can use to shred it to bits. And that's going to start the day. So go to renofmen.com conference to get tickets and use the code renofmen for $5 off. And for those who missed the first Renaissance of Men digital conference, those recordings are now live. You can go to renofmen.vhx.tv to get lifetime access to the talks on Vimeo On Demand, featuring Will Noland, Ryan King, Nate Spearing, Lawson Speaks, Mike Pantile, King David, myself, and of course, Brandon Lansdowne from Reformation Coffee. Again, go to renofmen.vhx.tv and use the code RENOFMEN to take $10 off. I'm going to be investing heavily in this platform, and the ladies' talks will appear there as well. So sign up now and be a part of it. And please welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast from New Christendom Press, the Hard Men podcast, the King's Hall, Refuge Church in Utah, and one of Yoga Journal Magazine's 10 Most Wanted Men, Eric Kahn. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Yes, brother. Thanks for having me. Thanks Glad for, to be here. Oh, man. Thanks for, thanks for being on. Uh, before we start, I just want to thank you for all the incredible content that you make as a as a podcast host that inspires me, and uh, and I, I really appreciate all the work that you do uh, because I get a lot of men asking me like, "Hey, Will, when are you going to talk to the Kings Hall guys?" I'm like, "I'm working on it, working on it." So I'm excited to <laughs> yes. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm glad uh, it's it's grown over the years, and we uh, I think one of the biggest things we've been able to just meet a lot of cool people and you know see how that truth is changing people. So that's been really encouraging. Oh yeah, for sure. I, you know, I was listening to um, to one of the podcasts before we jumped on today, and I think what really 
really stands out to me is is the the power of the interaction between you and Dan and Brian. Like that, the three of you are sitting together having a conversation, you know, in person in real time, and to feel that spirit of brotherhood that exists, mm. the very authentic brotherhood that exists b- between you. It's such a it's it's really refreshing, and that's that's what I mean. In addition to the wisdom and the truth and and, and that you guys share, it's that spirit that I think is so appealing. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. I, I think it's easy to overestimate or underestimate rather the value of friendship, mm-hmm. uh, particularly male friendships. We live in a world where people don't typically have them, mm-hmm. and I think that when you think about Jesus, it's like Jesus and and twelve really cl- close friends, um, and even has like inner circle and all those things. But how that could change the world. I know when I was getting to know Dan and Brian, and we were kind of scheming and talking about maybe one day we'd do it a podcast, we'd call it the King's Hall. Uh, I was also just reading a lot about brotherhood, you know, read about men in the military, um, you know, the band of brothers type mm-hmm. psychology that when you go through war together, uh, it really bonds you together. But I really got to thinking about like why that is so important for men. And then, of course, you know, we start the podcast, we do the show, and it's probably the number one thing that we hear uh, as b- by way of feedback is, man, you guys seem like you're really actually friends. <laughs> We're like, yeah, no, we actually are friends. We're on the same mission together in Ogden, Utah. And uh, it, it becomes this life-changing thing at the center, which is male friendship. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what men are starved for. Like in addition yes. to the crisis of father hunger, if a, a crisis of, of almost brother hunger as well, like men are, they're so isolated and they haven't had friends and they haven't had fathers. And it's like, and I think the thing that struck me the most about this conversation, uh, which was about, um, I have to look up the episode that I was listening to. It was like fathers being simps, something like that, I think is, is the oh, one they yeah, checked yeah. out. Yeah. It was yeah. like the stuff that you're talking about, it, it sounds so basic. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's like, this it is, does. this is where we're at that we're talking about things as men that if you were to wind back the clock 200, 300 years, men would be like, why are you talking about this? Like sky is blue, grass is green, water wet. And yet, yeah, that's where we're big at. Time. Big time. You know, it's, it's funny, Will, too. Like when we're, like we'll plan out podcasts and then we, we do a lot of time interacting with our listeners, obviously. Uh, but through that process, we're like, I think that people are fatherless men who like a lot of the stuff we're saying at the high level is probably going over their head because they would ask us questions like, but, but how do I actually find a godly woman? Like, how should I be as a man if I want to win that woman? So, you know, how do you get the girl? Like, they actually don't know any of that. Um, and I think it's, you know, it really is. You think about Proverbs. Proverbs is the wisdom of kings. Um, it's a book about teaching from fathers and mothers to sons how to live in this complex world. But then you think about it, you're like, okay, well, you've had generations of no parents, no fatherhood. What's going to happen? You have no wisdom. So like the stuff that we've had to do is like how to lead your wife, Um, you know, on the modesty front. It's like, okay, well, how does that actually work out in a marriage? What kind of conversations do you have with your spouse about what you wear, what she wears? Who sets the rules on that? How do you talk through those issues? That's why we found people just need a lot of really practical, practical advice. Yeah, well, that's a that's a perfect segue into something that's happening right now. Like, uh, like you you dropped a you dropped a grenade, you threw a grenade into the hornet's nest about uh, about uh, yoga pants, and that's all. Has that died down a little bit? A little, let's back up. Like, what was it exactly that you said, and then what happened, and 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 bring us up to speed with kind of where we are today. It's been about twenty four hours or so, something like that, maybe forty eight hours. 
Yeah, that's right. So I had posted about yoga pants on Twitter and I said, acceptable occasions to wear yoga pants. Alone in your house with your husband, working out in your private gym while your husband watches you. People really <laughs> like that part. I bet. The end. And I said, no public venues, no social media. Yeah. So yeah, that blew up. I think I thought it was maybe dying down yesterday, but what'll typically happen with these, like it, it takes like one account. So I've had Bloomberg, uh, people from Bloomberg Whoa. engaging with the Post, Washington Post. Uh, yesterday, there was a, like a former director of the CIA, one of the department heads. Uh, he got involved. I got blocked by a few people at the CIA and the FBI after I said, well, they jumped on the post and they were like, you know, kind of trashing my take, of course. And I said, don't you guys have like a government somewhere to overthrow in a sovereign nation? <laughs> and then I got blocked. So but good. Got it, blocked it's just for that. funny because it's like, why? Why yoga pants, right? Why yeah. is this such a thing? So yeah, we've been talking about it as pastors here at Refuge Church. And really, it comes back to a, a very fundamental principle why we started the King's Hall was we are fundamentally doing a Gideon thing. We're going out in the public square and we're taking the idol of the day and we're destroying it. We're poking it in the eyes. And the idol of the day today is women. Particularly when you get into women and sexuality, female sins, these are the things that you cannot touch, you cannot address. So we talk about, right, every culture, whatever you worship, you have blasphemy, law, blasphemy laws around those things. Well, we have blasphemy laws around addressing female sins. Yep. Um, you know, the latest King's Hall, we were even replaying the old Matt Chandler, uh, Jesus Wants the Rose sermon. Excuse me if you've heard that one. No. But the, yeah, Jesus Wants the Rose. Matt goes through this whole thing and he's like, you know, I was talking to this woman uh, in college and, uh, you know, she, she, we're going to class together and, you know, she's in an adulterous affair with like some other guy. And he's like laughing about this. <sighs> and he's like, and the most disgusting thing happened. This pastor gets up there and he's like, if you're a woman and you sleep with everyone here, you're going to be like this rose with no petals and it's going to be gross. Who wants to be that? And so Matt's whole point was like, Jesus wants the rose. And, you know, we brought that up because we're like, well, actually, this pastor is doing a really good thing in just addressing female sin and saying like, actually to be promiscuous and to fornicate with strange men, it actually does make you undesirable in the marketplace. I mean, surely there's repentance. You can turn away from those things. You can, you know, still build a marriage, whatever, but you're still going to live with the consequences of all those things. So really, you know, like again, yoga pants, it, it, it isn't about yoga pants. It's about female sin. It's about the idols of the day. And uh, yeah, we just found that uh, we had a former congressman from Montana who jumped in on this. There were some F-bombs. Uh, people who were just like very, very angry uh, that we were addressing yoga pants. Yesterday, I think it was... I think this thing was at like 6 million impressions. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm looking at it right now. It's 14.3. So it's almost wow. doubled in a day. Wow. So yeah, people are very angry. You cannot tell women how to dress. You can't tell women nothing. You can't tell them anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at some point, America, I call it the feminist theology. The feminist mm -hmm. theology is that women have been oppressed throughout all of history. And so now to make up for that oppression, we as a society have to bow the knee to women. And that is actually, if you, if you, I have a, a presentation about this, the Wikipedia definition of radical feminism as of 2021, it may not be this way now, said that um, oppression of women 
is a, a trans historical phenomenon that is the model for all other forms of oppression. This was the Wikipedia really? definition. Yeah. So what? So what? The radical. Yeah. What radical feminists would say is that you know oppression of women is all other oppression is modeled on that and is trans across history. And so interesting. As you, yeah. So as you trace back all the all the lineages of say intersectionality, they all they all end up the final destination is the oppression of hmm. women by men. And so that's the final the final heresy is to challenge that. Yeah, it's so interesting. I remember reading this too, like early on years ago when I was doing research on like patriarchy. This was actually one of the main tenets of you know Marx and Frederick Engels. Frederick Engels actually has a work against patriarchy and it's all about how like all societies are constructed to oppress women blah 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 and you find that like really what these people are at war with is the household and father rule yeah because they knew that if you wanted to destabilize society and rebuild this communist utopia in their mind what you had to do was destroy men first like because they're the protectors they're the workers they're the people holding society up so then yeah fast forward 1960s and after there's like this rewriting of what America is and very central to that is obviously like women's lib, sexual revolution. I think what's sad to me as we watch all these things play out, um, the, the bondage that these people are actually in. So one of the things, I, I got into it with a lady who was a Maxim model, uh, Maxim that. magazine. Yeah, and she was just like, why do you think women are property? And I was like, you literally wow. sell your body to millions of men so they can masturbate to photos of you. And you're telling me that I'm making women property. Like you're basically taking your body, putting it on the marketplace and selling it to the, you know, the highest bidder, which in their case is like not actually that much money. Um, <sighs> and, and you're telling me that I oppress women. Realistically, I think, I think as a Christian, as a pastor, looking at this and stepping back and looking at what's going on, I feel really bad for these women. Mm-hmm. Like they're deceived their minds are and their hearts are hardened against the truth. Yep. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's wicked. It's horrible. But it, it's also just really sad. You're like watching them destroy their lives. They know it's against reason. They know it's against nature. And it's like, no, I, I love my sin. I'm going to keep doing it, even though it's killing me, destroying me, and storing up judgment. This is very sad. It is. It is. I, I've, I've given a lot of thought to this. And I actually think that from her perspective, she legitimately believes that she's right because, oh, yeah. because what was liberated in sexual liberation was women's sexuality, not men's. Mm-hmm. Is that we liberated yes. women's sexuality from the constraints of the home and family production. So women were told, now you own your sexuality and you don't have to give it to a man, yeah. right? You don't, in a, in a marriage, right? And so that's why, you know, the seeming contradiction of like, how can, how can women, like you said, how can they believe that they're sexually liberated when they're giving their sexuality to everybody else? Why is that liberation instead of marriage? Because they think, oh, now I own my sexuality. I'm not giving it to a man. When in fact, yes. when in fact you're owned by your, you're a slave to your passions now rather than under the, under the covering of a husband. It's a complete inversion. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think a lot of the women's lib and feminism was teaching you that right? All that sexual energy that you have as a woman, like you can use that as power over men, which actually there is some truth in that. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem is they're telling you that the, the best way to utilize that power is to give it away to like everybody. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, no, think about this. Like Wendy Shallot has a book about modesty, Jewish lady, mm-hmm. uh, but it's 
pretty good book. And she says in there, she says, well, when women were modest, they actually had more power because like, you know, you, you weren't just going to sleep with any guy that, you know, he had to come correct. He had to be disciplined, have money, um, you know, more than likely approach your father. This was actually a protection that actually empowered women. And then you think about like the women who ran households back in the day, Proverbs 31 woman, sort of being the prototype, they were revered. I mean, women in America in the early 1800s were absolutely revered mm -hmm. uh, because they were such a pillar of the productive household, not because they were selling their sex to everybody, every passerby on the corner of the street, uh, to use biblical language. So I think the problem with women's lib is it, it tells a pretty lie. Um, it does tell these women that they're free. Uh, but then what ends up happening is like you wake up and you're 40, you have no kids, and now you can't sell your body anymore. Like nobody wants that. Yeah, the, the, the big lie that was told to women was actually a lie of omission. Because recently the, the subject of the wall, quote unquote, the wall was going around on Twitter maybe two, three months ago. Oh yeah, and it's and it's like, um, I, I think the dis, I think that the way that the discussion was handled on Twitter, as usual, was not done well. But I think the the fact that mothers don't tell their daughters, like, look, you're used to relating to the world in such a way that you can get what you want with your beauty. You're you mm. get used to that for the first thirty some years of your life, especially through your twenties. Like you smile and men melt. That will go away, and you yes. need to recognize that. But mothers didn't tell their daughters that. Now society has to be telling women that, you know, either by force, by by them aging out of the dating pool, or with a jackhammer on Twitter. And it's yeah. it's such a shame. It's such a shame. And I don't think that there's women don't handle grief the same way men do. But but when women and and thank God for that. But when women yeah. recognize the betrayal of their mothers and their grandmothers, the outpouring of grief is going to be immense because they will recognize, like, no, no. Men didn't lie to me. My mother lied to me and my grandmother lied to me. And now here I am. Like if women handled grief and betrayal the same way men do, we would see societal violence on a level that we can't, we couldn't even imagine. But women don't handle things that way, thankfully. Oh yeah. Well, big time. And I, I think about it like pastorally again, going back to this example, but when you sit in a counselor's office with somebody who's repentant, come to faith, become a Christian, and they're talking about like a woman talking about abortion. That affects everyone. Like they tell you it's not going to, they tell it's going to, you, you, it's going to set you free. But what ends up always happening is they're sitting in a counselor's office grieving because they realize they've murdered their child. And like you said, because of the lie that so many women had told them that this was good, healthy, and right. And now they're afterwards when they can't do anything about it. Now they're saying, no, this is actually insanely horrible. I, I also think, though, it's interesting. So you've got like the betrayal from women. But I thought like with the Maxim model lady, with a lot of people on here, they're like, no, let me show you my degeneracy. Let me show you how free I am. So like posting all these photos. And the men in the comments are like, yeah, you go girl, like do your thing. And then, so I'm thinking with these women, like you realize you're being like, you're being played even by the men. Like, yeah. of course, these pervy guys are going to tell you to keep taking your clothes off. Right. But, but, but again, like, what you have to tell these women is like, if even if you just think about it, like bare economics, like you sleep with a ton of guys, you get older. Like when you're 40, you legitimately have to ask yourself, like, 
what is the value of that in the market? You know, the romantic, sexual, relational marketplace. What's the value? It's not very high. No. But if you got married at 20 and then you're 40 and you've been married to your wife and she's given you children and you're raising those children, well, now you're connected to a woman that you're going to love for a myriad number of reasons, even after the physical beauty fades, which Proverbs, end of Proverbs 31 ends that way. Beauty fades. That's mm-hmm. the reality of it. My buddy, Jonathan West, who hosts the Being Husband podcast, which I recommend, he talks about, um, he's, he's, a, he's been a, a, great, uh, a great teacher for me in the faith. He says that um, the glory of men is their strength and the glory of women is their beauty. And our job as men and women is to transition those from outer qualities to inner qualities as we age. And when, oh, big time. And when he said that to me, I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. Because, because I think our, our culture is so obsessed with these outer displays of our glory that we don't really have a model for what happens to the woman when she becomes 40. But what about when the man becomes 40 or 50 or 60, when it's like, you can't put up the big numbers on the, on the lifts anymore. You're, you lo- lose a step. Like what happens to men when you get there? Our culture is not good, especially a masculinity culture is not good at addressing that. It's all very short-term thinking for both men and women. And we should be blessed to live until we're 80 or 100 years old. Like that's a blessing for that much life, but I think a lot of people really fear it because they haven't been they've been discipled for short term thinking, and that shows up very much in that uh, Maxim model girl. I remember I saw that was how I saw that your tweet was starting to blow up as I saw the string of comments with the two of you. I'm like, who's this? And I checked on I, I clicked on her page and I looked at her profile. I'm like, whoa, okay, I see what's going on here <laughs> right away. Like maybe 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 she should set this one out. <laughs> yes. Well, it was interesting too because. Somewhere in the exchange, like I just, I was going through the retweets. I'm like, man, these are crazy. Um, and then I saw hers and I mentioned it in one of the posts. I was like, well, like you're, you're a Maxim model. And she was like, she said something in one of the comments like, oh, so you Googled me on the internet and now you know who I am, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, actually no, your profile picture is you on the cover of Maxim. Yeah, it's like pretty, I put that one together. <laughs> the level of inner interchange on some of these is like not real high. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's once you start getting closer to the real heart of the issue, you can see them get, su- people get super squirrely. Like, oh, would you look me up? Are you a fan? You've been stalking me? It's like, no, I just wanted to see you. <laughs> it's literally, it's like on your picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard when you push, when you push the, on the points that people feel deep within themselves are wrong. They don't want to respond and say, yeah, you're right. Maybe things are messed up. They want to double down. They're, I mean, the public, the, the public environment kind of forces them to, but you hope that sometime maybe someone on the internet will admit like, okay, yeah, I was wrong, but that's, the internet doesn't, is biased in that direction. Yeah. And even, uh, so I had a, you know, exchange with one of the guys from, I think the Washington post, he's one of their columnists. Mm. So he was talking about, oh, you know, clothing styles always change. He tried to start the discussion kind of uh, probably like most of the elites or the intellectuals do where they're like, you know, I'm fair-minded and blah, blah, blah. Sure. But by the end of it, it's like people are just seething mad that a man would tell a woman yeah. that, hey, that thing you're wearing is not appropriate. Yeah. Um, and, and even with the yoga pants, you know, a lot of it, <clears throat> it, it it's a good conversation, you know, to have with uh, people. We mo- mostly are thinking of like, okay, women in our church, our daughters, how do we teach them the beauty and the glory of modesty? And like, like I responded to that guy, it was like, well, yeah, their styles change, but some of the key principles, you know, like modesty 
it, it actually doesn't change. Right. So this is where I think people get lost on the clothing conversation is, yeah, I'm not arguing like, you know, you know, turtlenecks or this style is inherently whatever. That would be like advanced degree work. I'm saying don't go into the public sphere naked and or with, you know, clothing so skin tight that all your genitals are showing. Yeah. So that's like kindergarten level. Like don't go in public naked. That's shameful. I think the other problem with this is because of like a porn culture, everybody has just been so desensitized to that that, I mean, you read about these stories like the other day, it was like three New York teens in a high school hold a girl down and gang rape her while they film the thing on smartphones. So as a father, that's deeply grieving. And But then you're thinking, where would they have gotten that idea, I wonder? Like, how do they even know what that is? Well, other things on TikTok and social media, Snapchat, whatever, probably. But I almost guarantee that every one of those boys is, you, you know, probably addicted, if not just exposed to a lot of pornography. Uh, it's very, very common that they would be in our culture. And you can see the data like leads to this, this violence, but that's part of the, you know, being desensitized to it as well. That's so problematic. There's a book that my listeners have heard me recommend at this point over and over again, Libido Dominandi by E. Michael Jones. Mm, and uh, yeah. 600 page monster, small font, you know, 50 pages of of end notes and it it goes into you know the the slow decay it's kind of like a battering ram like you know during the from the enlightenment forward the french revolution literally it starts with the french revolution moving forward the battering ram that they took to western civilization through battering down sexuality and now we have young boys essentially being discipled by pornography and men mm. too in many ways you know it's i was talking to a, a friend last night like i think i probably saw porn for the first time when i was like 12 something like mm. that and and I had never actually given much thought to what did that do to me, if anything? Like how did that impact me? I don't know that I don't know that I can actually I don't know that I actually know, but now we're seeing the effects, clearly seeing the effects of of you know uh, boys and girls discovering porn at an earlier and earlier age. And it leads, as as uh, E. Michael Jones talks about in this book, it leads directly to sexual violence like that. Like he, he says in one chapter, this is exactly how you can go from point A to point B, from pornography to sexual violence. And in the early days when porn was first starting to become popular, they knew that. And yet here we are with it all around us all the time. And we're supposed to deny that these things exist. Yeah, exactly. When you, you can go back to the French Revolution. Uh, one of his other books that I was reading recently, Monsters from the Id, Kind of goes through the same thing, like the degeneracy of the French Revolution, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, all these people. Yeah. They wanted to tear down Christian society. And so one of the key measures they used was introducing pornographic material to the populace. Mm -hmm. So media, like I always tell people, it's like, why do you think like the CIA and intelligence communities, they're like overthrowing governments. The first thing they do is they want to capture media. Hmm, I wonder why that is. So, you know, you, you look at that and you say, okay, well, Maybe we're in that position culturally where like, this is sad to say, but like pornography is so widespread. You know, the Cardi B lyrics and songs, all that stuff is so widespread that people don't even notice it anymore. And so this is one of the things I encourage guys with is like, you've got to get your mind out of the gutter slash trough of what the culture is trying to feed you it sounds hokey, but like that's how they literally conform you to their image. 
you know, I had a, a, a friend the other day told me this. He said, you know, not a Christian, not going to church, whatever. But he said, he goes, man, it's really weird. Like I put my kids in front of a smartphone or a tablet and they just start watching YouTube all day long. He goes, I think this stuff is like messing with their minds. And I was like, bro, like you were just coming to that realization. Of course it's messing with their minds. That's why they do it. You know, how many kids are watching Mr. Beast and all of a sudden, you know, we're watching like Chris transgender or whatever he is now. And, you know, they're like, oh, now we're going to celebrate this. Like that stuff is forming the affections of your children's hearts. So yeah, again, I think this goes back to a, a number of issues too. We could address like pastorally, right? I'm thinking about a lot of stuff as pastor and it's like, well, we kind of hit guys pretty hard on porn. Um, but do we talk to our women about the way they dress pornographically in, in public? Okay, so we need to address those issues sexually. Um, you need to address issues sexually like, you know, our wives withholding from their husbands in marriage. That's a very common issue. Yeah. Um, so we got to aim at the glory of sex and all those things as well. Um, but I also think too, like, you know, it goes back to that issue of like, if you want healthy marriages in a church, you've got to deal with the female sins. Like you just have to preach on them. You have to preach against nagging wives. All that stuff's in scripture, by the way. Um, so you have a lot of material to work with. Um, and I think it's slowly going to start to, you know, turn the tide. But yeah, certainly you look at Twitter and you look at what's going on out there. It is, if anything, it is like you get a pretty good taste of where the culture's at. Yeah. And it's not really that great. No, no. And, and suddenly you have um, actual outspoken Christian men showing up and saying, that's wrong, that's sinful, that's bad, that's fallen. and actually calling it for what it is, people do not like it. They are not accustomed, especially Christian men. They don't like that. Like that's sometimes some of the worst vitriol as as the men who call themselves quote unquote Christian, or maybe that's what their profile is, or maybe they're bots, who knows, but coming in and white knighting, it's like, bro, do you even know what you're talking about? Like, can Mm -hmm. we die? And they don't even want to dialogue on it. No, I've had a lot of guys who are one guy the other day, it was on Instagram, but he said, um, He's like, listen, if lust is a problem, then it's only the man's fault. Ugh. He's like, David sinned, not Bathsheba. And I was like, this is the whole like, I mean, you can read most older commentators like on the David Bathsheba thing. And they're like, yeah, she, she clearly, like, what is she doing as well? Right. Um, nothing in that story leads us to believe she was raped. Um, it seems like a pretty mutual thing. She's bathing in front of David's President's naked on a housetop. Right. Probably knew what she was doing. Um, yeah. And, 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 and again, it's that issue of like, do women sin sexually? Of course they do. Right. Potiphar's wife. We know this happens all the time. But that's kind of the weird thing with our, our cultural moment, right? You have to put the blinders on and be like, no, it's always the guy's fault. And I've said it repeatedly. I'm like, you know, each person in scripture like has male, you know, um, the post office is delivering mail, read your own mail to the men. He's saying, you know, don't lust. Men love to lust. And so they need to be told, like, don't do that. You know, keep your eyes, guard your heart, those sorts of things. And in the next, you know, breath in scripture, we're getting ladies. Listen, I know you like to be immodest. I know you like the attention. Uh, don't do that. You know, adorn yourselves modestly with dignity, uh, a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, so anyway, yeah, you... It's, it's pretty common sense. These things aren't contradictory, but we can address both of them and uh, we should be better off. But now, nowadays, what do you hear mostly from the women 
and and about women's sins is it's always the guy's fault. No. Right? You've even seen the videos though, right? Where it's like a woman at a gym like bending over seductively and being like, why are you staring at me? And you're like, oh, you can't be that dumb. Yeah. Especially when, especially when they're wearing like the literally the butt crack yoga pants. Right. Yes. Like, like, for, like someone, people have been posting photos of you with your family and your wife wearing like yoga capri, capri pants. Like, first of all, that photo is five years ago. Right. So if you're using a photo from five years ago to make your point, yes. it's not, it's not strong. But the, the difference in culture in just that five year period of time, the, the degeneracy of the degeneracy to, you know, now we don't just have yoga pants, which are like form fitting. We have them like form shaping, right? You know, with like the butt crack and all that stuff. And it's like, we're in a completely, we're in a completely different realm. And those girls are wearing those things to the gym. And I'm sure we all saw the Twitter video that went around like this creep is staring at me. It's like, no, he's just like, what's going on over there? You know what I mean? Like, what, what's it? He's not staring, but like, are you expecting? And this is the real problem. This is this. Yeah. And, and women get upset when you say this. It's like, are you expecting that men are not supposed to look right? Like, why are you? I'm wearing it for me. No, you're not. Cause you can't see your no. own. You can't see your own butt. You know, yes. I, I just like how I feel when I wear it. I was like, that's not true either. You know what I mean? No. I, and, and that's no, the and lie. I, I think that's even with like, we have these conversations with little girls um, as fathers, right? Where you're like, look, honey, I know you like attention. And that's why girls will do that, right? They want to be looked at. They want to be eventually, at, you know, with they, as they get older, they want to be lusted after. And um, so you, you take that and you say, okay, there's a way to channel this in a, so that it glorifies God. Yeah. So meaning like you should want to wear a pretty dress for your husband. You should want to, in the right context of your bedroom, you know, adorn yourself in such a way that you're sexually enticing to your husband. That's great. That's a gift. Mm -hmm. um, you should do that. Read Song of Solomon. Um, there's a lot of colorful sexual language. Um, a metaphor, that, that, bro. That, yeah, it's a metaphor. Uh, th that is kind of interesting though, because uh, in the midst of all this that's going on on Twitter, Modesty debates, uh, always a huge topic. There's also a group of guys who are like the trad Catholics mm -hmm. and they keep jump, jumping in and they're like, they're jumping in because I said you should stare at your wife's rear end while she's working out. Of course, I'm, it's tongue in cheek. I'm being playful here. Twitter guys, calm but down. It's, it's just calm down. Uh, but the, what's interesting is they were like, no, sex is never intended for pleasure. It is only for procreation. And I'm like, I just want to know, like, have you ever read Song of Solomon? Right. And, and then you go to like Proverbs 5.18 when the father says to his son, son, don't, don't go for the whore. Stay away from Lady Folly. But now I want you to become drunk in your wife's love, sexual love. I want you to be satisfied with your wife's breasts. I mean, most fathers cannot imagine saying that to their 17-year-old son or 18-year-old son as he's engaged, going to get married. And you say, hey, you should actually be intoxicated, drunk with your wife's sexual love, right? That's, it. again, pleasure is, I think it, it's clear in scripture that that's a huge part of the equation. But, but, but again, it's what, what is good gets twisted by sin and by the curse. So you have these same ladies who will take the like thong built into the yoga pants, wedge up butt, whatever, you know, accentuating your butt. It's like a push up bra for your butt, basically. Mm. They'll wear those and take, you know, selfies. They'll put reels on Instagram. They put it all over for the world to see. And I guarantee you, I've met a lot of these ladies in counsel room. It's like the same lady 
is like, I'm not going to wear that for my husband. Like, I don't care what he thinks. Or like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold sex from my husband. And you're like, okay. You're not aiming these things in the right direction, right? And so that, again, for ladies, Brian has said this a lot. He'll say, listen, wives, set a sexual feast for your husband. Um, good, great. You should do those things. Don't do that for everybody else. We're, we're not putting pictures of you in a bra and panties or a bikini and bathing suit. We're not putting those on social media. And it is hard. Look, we've been so desensitized, as I said, and culturally, that seems so normal. That's part of our catechesis into this culture is sexual flippancy. That when a guy says, maybe yoga pants that show off every contour of your genitalia is not the best idea for public wear, People don't know what to do that even within the Christian camp. But they just, it goes, it's like the first time you learn that like, maybe Abraham Lincoln didn't do some good things too. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't all good. I remember being angry the first time I heard that. And I was like, what? No, every, the North is the hero every time in every way. They never did anything wrong. Um, you know, FDR, World War II, all these, these moments where you're like, we're always the hero, guys. Don't you know that? We, we didn't do anything wrong except for, you know, uh, then you start reading a lot of the accounts and you're like, okay, well, maybe I was wrong, but I think it ruffles people's feathers because it's like our whole world was built off these matrix-like quote-unquote truths. And then when you find out they're not true, that red pill moment, it's actually really hard for people to stomach. I forget. I forget that. I'm guilty of forgetting that sometimes because I've been thinking about these things for a number of years and I recognize mm-hmm. a bit like the father who's like, now my kids are watching YouTube. I think it's bad for their brains. Like some yes. people, some people are there. You know, some people yeah. are waking up to yeah. these things, learning about. Yeah, but Abraham Lincoln was not always a great guy. Martin Luther King not always a great guy. Gandhi not always a great guy. You know, and, and to and to and to recognize that, like, okay, what are we actually going to wor- root our worldview in? That is not a matter of hero worship of of uh, of of men, because we will always be disillusioned. And so, yes, you know, the thing that we peel back. Because I wanted to comment on something you said about this. Um, this Washington Post writer who said, you know, uh, standards change, fat styles change, like, but modesty doesn't change. God's commandments to us do not change because no. we don't change. We are the same as we've ever been. We've tried to mold society around us to shatter vital things within us, but those can be resurrected, let's say, in a moment and rediscover like, wow, everything is really, is really broken. And there's only one place to root all this stuff. And so, so I guess... I want to, I want to, there's something that came up while you were talking where it's like, how within the church do we begin discipling around sexuality? Because that has seemed like this giant red line topic that we just don't deal with it. And it's all throughout the Bible in both positive and negative manifestations. But similar to the conversation around how do we disciple around physical fitness? There's this real discomfort in Christian circles with talking anything about the body, physical fitness and sex being, you know, uh, probably the two top topics. And like, we're just starting to have the physical fitness conversation, right? When is the sex conversation happening? When are we like, kids, we got to talk about sex. Yeah, I think it's, it's such a big issue uh, that it's going to take a lot of work, I think, with teaching. And so I, I think that's a good place to start uh, for a lot of people. You know, first of all, it's like you, you have to find a pastor, you have to find a church that are going to deal with sexual issues because we are sexual beings. Um, this is the way that God created us. And our sexuality ends up being 
really central to some of the most powerful, either for good or for evil things that will happen in our lives, right? Absolutely. And so I think that, you know, having that basis of teaching is a good starting point. I know for me, I just think about my own life. It's like, well, what were the things that changed uh, for me? Well, you know, like reading Zach Garris's book, Masculine Christianity. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of red pill moments that you'll have in there. I just encourage people like read it with an open mind. But one of the things that I started to realize was, okay, these actually aren't, like the things I'm talking about, patriarchy. This is historical. It, it's rooted in the confessions. Uh, you can go back and you can read the reformers on this. Um, Zach's actually uh, working on a book for New Christian Press that hopefully we'll have out in a year or so, but it's about uh, the reformers and their view on sexuality and awesome. particularly feminism. Um, they're not, like you, you go back and read them and you realize like John Calvin, um, you know, Bunyan, John Bunyan, Bunyan was the one who was like, listen, ladies, like you got your breasts hanging out like, you know, you're a cow about to milk, like put them away. I mean, they said some things that, that were like very, very direct and offensive to us today. Well, they were just being good pastors, right? They also didn't live in an era where it was like taboo to speak about sexual sins or to address female sins. So I, I think you just start addressing them. It is going to take courage. Obviously, like probably what's missed in this whole Twitter modesty yoga pants thing is that I was primarily trying to address people that we appreciate, love, respect, and want to see continue grow within Christendom and within Christianity. Like these are ladies within our circles that we want to encourage um, to greater maturity in the faith and modesty being a part of that. Um, and, and then, you know, the outside world gets in and you're like, oh, you're just trying to take shots at, at the hose on Twitter. And I'm like, well, no, I'm actually, that's not my main audience, believe it or not. Mm. Um, you know, as much as I like getting trolled. So I, I do think that teaching, um, what you'll find is you start getting into the teaching. Husbands, we tell, you know, lead your wives in this. Uh, one of the male roles in scripture, the reason a pastor has to be a man is because part of the male role is teaching. So husbands be teaching your wives. You know, I lead my wife through this. We read a lot of the same books together. Um, on the modesty issue particularly, um, I would definitely recommend Jeff Pollard's book, uh, The Public Undressing of America, Christian wow. Modesty and the Public Undressing of America. It's a short book. It's like 120 pages. But he goes through kind of key themes of like nakedness and shame in scripture. Um, a lot of things that I had not thought through until a couple of years ago, right? The first Thing that Adam and Eve realize when they've sinned is that they're naked and that it has brought shame upon them. And the first act of God's grace is that he clothes them. He looks at their clothing, which is like G-strings, and he's like, uh-uh. So I've joked, I've said, well, God is the first father who says to his kids, go back upstairs and put more on. That's not enough. And he's the one who provides the sacrifice and then clothes them with animal skins. So uh, walking people through you know, what does scripture actually teach? Why does the New Testament say when Peter jumps into the ocean, he takes his outer garment off and it jumps into the ocean. He still has his undergarments on, his tunic, right? This isn't even really like his underwear. This is like way more than we would, most people would even have on today. But when he jumps in, the Greek refers to him as being naked. And you will find throughout scripture, like a woman's thigh being uncovered in the book of Jeremiah is uncovering her nakedness. Right? It, it's not 100% stark naked equals naked. 
So anyway, I think going through those things, learning them together, what you'll find is you'll see changes like me and my wife have said, okay, I think that our standards, you know, are going to change. Yes, there was a day when my wife were, you know, like honestly pretty baggy, like capri dress pants, right? She doesn't anymore. And that's part of the discussion, right? That we're allowing that people are going to make progress in this stuff. But I think, you know, bedrock would be like pastors. You just got to have to start teaching on it and husbands leading on these things, especially when you know it's going to be like heinously unpopular. Um, one other thing I'll say, like Brian and I talked about in a Patreon, a Patreon exclusive recently, we also have to not just say like, you shouldn't wear bikinis to the beach, but I think be a little bit more radical to that and say, why is it that people didn't swim co-ed together until like 1920? right? Particularly in America. Like if you would have gone to like the Mayflower people and said like, hey, we're going to do public bathing. What do you guys think? And it's going to be co-ed. They'd be like, you're out of your mind. Right? We're not, we are not doing public bathing. That would have been seen as like incredibly lewd. So I think going back to that, um, the gym would be another one. Uh, we all talk about going to the gym being as men, like being one of the hardest places because people dress like hoes there. Right. And and then if you're like a woman, like my wife was like, honey, I don't feel comfortable going to the gym. Like it's creepy. It's like, great. You know, for a thousand bucks or under, you can build a home gym. You can put one in your house and you can work out privately and you don't have to deal with any of the hose or yoga pants or, you know, sports bra attire, any of those things, you know, for my teenage sons, for my wife, for myself. So I think it's 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 just starting to unpack those things practically and be a little bit more radical and push back against a lot of what has become so normative. And there's a component of like, look, if, if you don't take this on head on like a man, like a father, or even like a pastor, culture will do it for you. Oh, right? big time. And, and that's the odd thing is that while, while the church and while families have become so afraid of talking about sex, culture's screaming about it, right? So why are, yeah. why are we so sensitive around this topic when like you can't even watch a hamburger commercial? without it being sexualized. And yet we can't talk about it, right? I don't, that doesn't make sense to me, but. Yeah, well, big time. I think also part of it is like my generation growing up, like dads were like super uncomfortable talking to their sons about sexuality, yeah. right? It was like, eh, you know, your mom and I, uh, birds and bees. Well, and and women like, love oh. each other very much. You're like, oh gosh, just let this conversation end. But like you said, like I realized with my kids, you know, it's like they're, they're like eight and, you know, their friends are like, you know, on YouTube surfing. They're like, dad, we saw this weird thing. And you're like, okay, we're at a point culturally where we're going to have to be aware of that and address that a lot earlier. And I think when you, again, going back to women's lib, you think about one of the books that changed everything for people was Our Bodies, Ourselves, right? And that book in the 60s, it was so impactful for women, it's like complete trash, right? But it was impactful for women because it was the first time in a very sort of Victorian era where they got honest, straight talk about sex. Like it was like telling ladies how to have orgasms, but also telling them how to get abortions. Oof. So it's like, what did they hit on that was good? They were giving information to people that no one else would give them. So, okay, fast forward today. It's like, you want to win the young people. You want to win the generations that are coming. You have to actually equip them, which means like, you know, for your young men, you can't, 
I hear this all the time. Like you can't send young people and like young men, especially you can't send them into marriage with like no knowledge of anything sexual. And we actually do have good resources. You know, Ed Wheat's book, Intended for Pleasure. Like you're going to have to learn things like how, how to pleasure a woman, i.e. your wife. Like what a lot of people will say to me, oh no, we don't ever need to talk about those things. It'll just come naturally. That's actually not true at all. And we're doing people a disservice when we act like, you know, prudes on these issues. Meanwhile, they can open up men's health and learn like every sex position, you know, it's literally like the culture is going to tell them anything and everything. So, you know, I would rather be the father who's like in front of that and the father who's like, let me tell you, right? Proverbs 5, let me tell you how to be delighted in your wife, okay? Like instructions. I don't want the world educating my children. This is like another one where Christians are like, there's a whole swath of mainline Christians who like send their kids to public school and they're like, yeah, you know, I just wish that the sex ed was like not including like sodomy and other things. And I'm like, hmm. let's think about this. Let's back up. Do you think a state in the condition that our state is in, but let's just say the state ever, should they be the ones teaching your kids about sex? How has that gone culturally? Has that been a good thing? I think the obvious answer is no. But again, that means like we can't be the church lady to our kids, right? we can't be super prudish and not give them the information that they need to build a healthy sex life in marriage. Thank you for all of that. Because I've thought through a lot of these issues because what was liberated in sexual liberation was female sexuality from the, we were talking about like, that's what was liberated, not male sexuality, female sexuality was liberated. And one of the tools that they used to liberate female sexuality was the promise of orgasm. That's what uh, Wilhelm Reich talked about, the orgasm. So what that says is the women and their marriages prior to that either weren't having orgasms, didn't know they could have orgasms, or weren't being given orgasms or what. I don't know if that's true or not. I wasn't around back then. But there is yeah. still this question of like, okay, men, if that, let's just take on faith that that's true, that the power of sexual liberation was women for the first time being able to have orgasms. So if we want to fix that, and bring women back into the home, men need to be able to provide their wives with orgasms because obviously that's what blew apart society in the first place. Where is the Christian teaching on that? And you just gave me a bunch of different books, great resources for that because yeah, I don't think it's natural that men will know how to do that. Assuming both parties are virgins, they would never have seen the partner genitalia before, right? And if you're not giving them sexual education, they got no idea what they're doing and they think it's just normal, right? And so you're, you're sending the blind in, leading the blind, like, I think this is how it works. Like, well, maybe not. Yeah, no, big time. And I think a lot of it too is the um, kind of the assumptions that we can make. I remember uh, in seminary, we had a professor uh, who taught on sex and he said, he was actually a medical doctor as well. But he said, yeah, I, I mean, people always say like it comes naturally. He said, we had this young Christian couple, like they were having trouble getting pregnant. And it was kind of awkward, he said, but he was like, basically had to be like, show me on the doll what you're doing. And then they're like explaining it. And it's like, thank goodness, it was nothing horrible, but it was basically like, you're not actually having intercourse. I don't know if you know that. And so then you think about that and you're like, okay, that could be a real thing. You mentioned the orgasm thing. 
Um, this is the whole push. Like if you read a lot of the the literature from like Cosmo magazine, where it's like they're trying to get women to do away with partners altogether. So they're like really pushing, you know, sex toys and, you know, self-pleasure and stuff like that. But it's all like, oh, you could have the best orgasm you've ever had by yourself. You don't even need a man. Well, again, it goes back to some fundamental truths. Who are you going to make easy prey for that? Like unsatisfied women in marriages? Um, you, you read at least the studies that I've seen. It's like, you have like maybe between 35 and 50% of women who've never had an orgasm in marriage. And you start thinking about that and you're like, okay, well, what if we just treated it like sex is a gift, but it's also a hard skill. Like you're going to have to get good at it. Right. And, and this goes back again, once again, to the yoga pants thing. It's like, I'm not saying to my sons, Hey, forget about the beauty of the, the female body. It's not beautiful. You should not even like, why do we even have women? Like, this is bad. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is such a glorious, good, powerful thing that can be misused to manipulate men and to destroy families and society that we have to adorn it the way God says to. And that's not by showing off every nook and cranny of the feminine form. But, you know, you think about even things like dresses, like until like 1920, dresses were pretty normative for women. There's actually a reason for that. Like, because you can still essentially highlight the glory of femininity. Like it's not androgynous. It's not baggy poncho clothing. But at the same time, it's not showing off every nook and cranny, right? You can still do that in a way that is glorifying to women and to their sex. So again, I think it's, it's putting things in perspective for the, for, for the younger generations. Look, they're naturally interested in sex and making money and you know building lives. Those things are good, but what do you aim it at? Right? If our children really are arrows, what are we aiming? We don't just blunt them. We have to aim them at something. And that includes sexually. And I think in this is also a gift of self that the father gives to his son and maybe if the mother gives to her daughter or maybe both, where it's like in American culture, we keep our, our nature as sexual beings very private, right? Mm. Like who, who am I when the bedroom door closes? Like that's something that I keep to myself and that only gets shared with hopefully one partner throughout our lifetimes, but you know, that part, the partners who fill those roles. And we don't show that to each other. We don't show that to our kids because it's scary. It's the most private part of ourselves. And yet, Mm -hmm. you know, to really have an honest, honest conversation about sex with our children, we have to show them those aspects of ourselves in an age appropriate way. And that's, that's really scary. Like that's a really scary idea, but that's the only way you're possibly going to effectively disciple a child in this. Because again, people in the culture will have no problem sharing the most personal aspects of themselves you know, on OnlyFans, for example. And that's oh, yeah. the discipleship that they're going to get if they don't get it from you, if you're not willing to cross that boundary of like, I'm really uncomfortable talking about this. But that might just be what your, what your child needs to hear because they will feel that authenticity, right? They'll feel that crossing the threshold. And yet in American culture, probably for lots of reasons, we don't cross that threshold and maybe we need to start getting closer to it. Yeah, and it is this fine line, right? Where you're trying to you're trying to guard this thing and make sure that like it's not lewd or anything like yeah. that. But at the same time, yeah, it's like you're going to have to be somewhat vulnerable. I mean, I've had that conversation with my kids and you know, kids are smart. They're kind of like the first thing they wait, so you and mom, you I'm like, "Yep." Yeah, a couple times. 
Yep. And but but here's the deal. Like we got through that early phase, and it's like they weren't freaked out, disgusted, whatever. Um, but I remember like growing up as a kid, the entire generations behind me, parents, grandparents, that friends, that whole generation, one of the most common things I would hear is like a kid would be like, dude, mom, dad, do you, do you got, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to worry about that. We don't do that. Mm. And I'm like, you're not actually doing your kids a favor. So the, keep in mind, we're like 13 at the time, you know, and you're hearing like grandma and grandpa joke. Oh, well, no, we never, we, well, we have five kids. So obviously five times, but other than that, no, 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 no. Yeah. And I'm like, that's actually not doing anybody any favors either. Um, so yeah, just having like direct conversations. I kind of had the idea uh, from other pastors talking about it, but also um, just just realizing like being in rural ranching communities helped me. I remember seeing like cows going at it one one springtime or whatever, you know. And I said to my dad, I was like, "What's going on?" Like, you know, the, the one cow is like, you know. That bull's like attacking that cow. He's like, no, no, he's, you know, he's got a penis like you do. He's just putting a seed in her and that's going to be a calf. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, it, it really wasn't that big of a deal. You know, flip side of it, we're not saying like Maxim lady. Uh, we're not saying, hey, bodies aren't even sexual. It doesn't matter what you do with them. Flaunt it if you got it, blah, blah, blah. So there's like, this sacred element to it, you know, it's in the marriage bed, it stays behind walls, all those things, but also an openness and talking about it enough so that uh, people know what they're doing. And look, even as a parent, it's like, okay, recommend Ed Wheat's book. Like it's going to walk you through a lot of the stuff. Not like you have to have every single part of that conversation with your kid. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll say to my teenage son, like, you know, it'll be a great thing to pour your sexuality into the wife of your youth. That'll be amazing. And you should look forward to that. It'll be great. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And I think there's a, there's been a shift that's happened in American culture, probably in the West. I'm not sure where like families used to live in communal homes, right? Mm -hmm. Where, where the mother and father and the kids, they all slept in one big room. Right. And so the kids were exposed and that's maybe not the right word. The kids were present when their parents were having sex. Right. And like, not that I'm suggesting that, Right. Yeah, roll over and be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, that's how, that's how the world was before we had the prosperity that we have today, where people can live in single family homes and apartments with separate bedrooms. And that's still the case in, in many, um, in many developing countries today, where everyone lives together, you know, mothers, fathers, brothers, uncles, all the, all the thing for better or for worse in some cases, but where it wasn't separated to this other room in private. Same with death. Maybe there's probably something to explore there as well, where, where death wasn't something that was separated from culture also. And so, but now we're in this world where, you know, we were talking about at the very start of the conversation, we're dealing with sky is blue, water, wet level stuff about masculinity. And we're also getting back to the point where sky is blue, water, wet stuff about humanity. What does it mean to have sex? What does it mean to be men and women? What does it mean to die? Like, and we're not addressing these questions from this, you know, historical, philosophical level. We're addressing them from like, no, like really, what does it mean? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre moment. Yeah, it really is. And I think on the one hand, it's, um, it can be frustrating because you're like arguing with people about the blueness of the blue sky that we can all see. Yeah. Um, but at the other, uh, other, it's like, it's, we've talked about with Refuge Church, right? Maybe I'll just use this example. Mm -hmm. 
we often talk about Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragility. Sure. So anti-fragility is not just resilience. It's actually getting better when things get hard. So then you look at like the church and we're like, you know, it's with, you know, I don't know if we even meant this, but this is the way in God's providence it worked out. But it's like COVID happened and the world gets crazier and the church does better. So that's kind of the picture of anti-fragility. Well, you just roll that out into culture and what's going on. It's like, well, the more courageous you are in the moment of cultural insanity, the more truth speaking, direct and plain you are, the more practical you are. I think the more people that you're going to end up attracting to whatever it is you're trying to do. So like fundamentally, like I, I go on Twitter and I look at like Rolo Tomasi and a bunch of other people and, you know, yourself, myself, Michael Foster, all these people in sort of adjacent manosphere territory. Sure. And you say, we're all, whether we realize it or not, we're fundamentally competing with people for like, you should listen to the good life that I'm trying to lay out for you, mm-hmm. right? And how to get there. And I think what you realize is because of the moment the culture is in, you, the opportunity level has also in, increased, right? The number of men, for example, since 2020, who have realized you know, how bad it is to be you know, under lock and key control of like status government, okay? They're like, that's actually kind of sucks. Yeah. Uh, how many people in the last five years that I've talked to who are realizing how bad feminism sucks, men and women? Um, I think because of the way the world is, we have a greater opportunity that we're seeing those things. So I also think the opportunity to share truth with people is increasing. So it can also be a really good thing. And, and it's just realizing like, you know, sort of like the Lord of the Rings thing. Like I, w- I wish we, everybody has this feeling where I wish I hadn't been born in these times. And you're like, yeah, but you were. And, you know, God is going to equip us with his spirit that no matter what we, where we live, what time period, whatever, like we can be faithful here. So the way I've looked at it is like lean into the opportunity, right? Lean into the Twitter yoga pants battles as stupid as they really are because they're like, you know, as you said, these are like kindergarten level conversations about like, hey, hey, don't be naked in public. Mm. The sky is blue, cows go moo. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I want that on a t-shirt. The sky is blue, cows go moo. Stop it. Yes. Yes, Hashtag exactly. Yoga pants. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was talking with uh, Matt Reynolds from Barbell Logic uh, earlier yeah. this morning, and and we were we were talking about how, you know, in in the marketplace of ideas, what's really happening uh, is it's it's a worldview battle. It's a bunch of worldviews clashing it out, but it doesn't it doesn't appear that way. So the argument about yoga pants, it's not about the pants. You know what I mean? It, it, what we're really talking about is two different ways of viewing the world, or more than that, but you know, the right way and the wrong ways of, of viewing the world. And but the level of dialogue is at the yoga pants level, the behavioral level, and yet it's deeper. There's principles there, and there's no space to really have that decisive argument about principles. So we're arguing about the pants. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's just like the tip of the iceberg. The other thing I will say uh, for this cultural moment that is really huge is I think that I probably would have been kicked off Twitter if this was two years ago. Oh, yeah. So I think one of the things that we can be grateful for as purveyors of truth is the fact that Elon is, you know, is taking control of Twitter. Uh, It looks like Tucker Carlson will also be on the platform doing his video there. I think that's huge. I think it's significant. And and my main interest in it is that there's there's an agora, there's a public forum where ideas can be freely expressed so long as they're not violent or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm not supporting those things either. 
But I think that is really huge. One of the guys even, I think this was the Bloomberg writer, but he was the one that retweeted me. And he was talking about, you know, he's tired of seeing right-wing crazies in his feed. So he retweeted me. And then the first, yeah. He's like, Elon Musk Twitter is polluted by right-wing, blah, 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 blah. Well, so it's me retweeted by this guy complaining to Elon Musk. Then Elon actually responded. Whoa. And he was like, well, actually, you should see, like, based on our algorithms, we've got it where you should see a 50-50 split in right and left wing. Well, think about the significance of that comment. Like, what Elon is saying is we're designing it so that this is no longer just an echo chamber of everything you believe. Now, if you're a right-wing guy like myself, I've been on Twitter, and I'm like, Twitter looks the same to me. What's funny, though, is it's all the lefties who are like, why am I seeing this Christian fascist content? Why am I seeing this Christian nationalism in my feed? I think it actually builds a healthier society. Democracy is built on freedom of speech, mm-hmm. right? Like our society was designed particularly to function with freedom of speech, right? You, you look at the last couple of election cycles with Twitter, that was not the case. We're finding out how much that wasn't the case. Very much. And, I, you know, I think that hurt everybody. So anyway, kind of a side point, but I do think that the, the freedom to have these discussions has actually been really huge um, you can say, like, I think it's stupid to, like, cut penises off little boys. I'm not sure you could say that two years ago without getting banned. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And and that's it's funny you mentioned that because um, I hadn't given much thought to it. But I did remember um, I did remember that there were some community notes features going around tagged onto some political videos and the community notes, like particularly of Biden, the community notes were in contradiction to what the official narrative was. I was like, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Finally, actual actual facts, right? Um, and it's it, you're, uh, you make a really good point that it is possible to say these things now and cause necessary controversy over what's... It's not really an incendiary statement, what you said. That's what's no. odd about it. Like it's, it, you know, okay, you should be watching your wife working out at home. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of red meat there, but like, come on, that's, it's Twitter. Let's have fun. But everyone, that everyone went nuts and that people were seeing it and that this guy from Bloomberg is retweeting it. It's like, Thanks for the amplification, right? Yeah, thanks for the ratio. It's, it's, it's interesting, too. I got this email from Twitter. Uh, this was yesterday. Yesterday afternoon. And uh, so it's from Notify at Twitter. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, this is no good. It said, Twitter is required by German law to provide notice to users who are reported by people from Germany via the Network Enforcement Act reporting flow. We have received a complaint for the following content from your account. This is actually on the nature is clear. Women have long hair and men short. So like somebody clearly reported me, but this is what Twitter said. They said, we have investigated the reported content and have found that it is not subject to removal under Twitter rules or German law. Sincerely, Twitter. Mm. So first of all, like this is a society will that we live in where people are like, I'm going to report you to the German authorities because you ha- you made a statement about hair length, which is also found in scripture. Like people, you're going to turn me into the government? The German government. The German government. Like, this is where we are. Uh, but I do, th- again, once again, I think it goes back to uh, it being really helpful that it's not a army of basic white girls anymore running Twitter. 
but that it's Elon Musk. And look, think about it from a business perspective too, if you're Elon. Like Elon should be celebrating and jumping up and down when some nobody Twitter thing goes to 14.6 million impressions. Why? Because that's keeping people on his platform engaged, talking about what's going on there. That's good for business. Well, I know what's really strange is um, Instagram is actually, at least for the stuff that I talk about, it's dying. I've got a number. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I've got a number of a number of guys, some with tens or hundreds of thousands of accounts and women too, that are like all of our reach has been just absolutely throttled to 10% of where it was at. I've seen it. Really? In my, yeah. And it's very odd. It's very, very odd. It doesn't matter. Like I would think, okay, maybe it's just the guys talking about masculinity. No, it's the women talking about femininity as well. Like, I don't know what what's do you think go- is causing it. I have no idea. I, I'm, you know, the the if I put on my tinfoil hat for a second, I think you know maybe there's some concerted effort to drive people over to Twitter, right? Um, and I don't have a problem with that because let's let's have you know biblical masculinity and femininity duking it out in the marketplace of ideas, um, or maybe Twitter is starting to focus on other forms of con- or Instagram. I mean, I don't I don't really understand, but it's like okay, I'm getting ten percent of what I got. Other guys I know are getting ten percent of what they got. And I don't have any good answers for what's going on, but that we're getting engagement on Twitter to that degree. It's like, well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll go where the engagement is, so at least I can participate in the dialogue. Well, and that's what's so interesting. Like, so since Elon took over, my I'm at sixteen point two thousand followers now. Oh, wow. I want to say when he took over, I was probably at like seven or eight. Mm-hmm. So honestly. There's a couple of things. I was on Gab sharing the same content for a long time. And like pretty much overnight, I was at like 7,000 followers. And I was like, like just from like joining, sharing. Okay, great. But it makes me wonder looking back at Twitter, like how much was I being throttled? Probably a lot. And I think that's actually what's going on with Instagram as well. That I've gotten in the last probably month, I've gotten at least three warnings from Instagram where they're like, Hey, by the way, we have guidelines and you're a pig. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a technical okay. term. <laughs> okay. But but then like no problems with Twitter, which yeah. again, you remember, you know, post election, last election cycle mm. in January, mm. particularly, like mm. people were flooding gab because Twitter had turned into a place where it's like the president lost his account. Um, a lot of people were losing their accounts. It was very clear through COVID. And we now know this is actual facts that Twitter and the government were working to withhold information. They were banning doctors uh, who didn't follow the narrative. I mean, that quite honestly, like that was a little scary for a lot of people. So I, I, anyway, I think it's, it's, it's nice that we at least have one place where there's a little bit of freedom of speech. Yes, there's gab. And and I love Torben. I love the work that he's doing. But let's face it, it's like, what's the size in Twitter versus Gab? Right. I, I'm sure Twitter's much bigger, especially now that it's growing again. So, you know, hopefully Gab gets there. Um, I think, you know, they're hurt too by like, it sucks not having an app. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, you can have a web browser. I'm like, yeah, I know, but those suck. That's why people, that's why people want the app. So yeah, it, it's tough, but um. I, definitely free speech is a win. I think Gab is tough. I, I have great appreciation for what Torba has done. 
you know, at building his own network and platform and doing everything like rolling your own, you know, okay, just build your own Twitter. Fine. I did build your own server farm. Okay. I did build your own payment processor. Okay. I did build your own web browser. Okay. I did massive respect for that. But what I, what I observe is that when people go over to Gab, their message gets absolutely corroded by the exposure to some of the more radical elements of free speech. And look, you know, I don't, I don't uh, disagree with people being able to express themselves, but I think it ultimately, it ultimately eats away like acid. It eats away at the good things that people are trying to share. At least Twitter has, you know, there's a, there's an argument about the limits of free speech here. I don't want to get into that, but you definitely see that, you know, Twitter does have some constraints still. So for example, on Monday, someone shouted you and me and, and Brian out and that same morning, it, I had jokingly posted um, in response to the meme going around, like, if you, love your, if you love your girlfriend, you want to see how much she loves you, like, break up with her for 30 days and see what happens. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I was like, it's just dumb. And so I, I posted, ironically, if you want to see how much you love to live, try to drown yourself and see how much you fight <laughs> for oxygen. And that got flagged by Twitter within seconds. Within, really? Yeah, within seconds. Like, bang, locked out, email for promoting self-harm, right? Interesting. For 12 hours, no opportunity to appeal. So like the irony, yeah. So the irony sensor is off, but yeah, there was, it wasn't even human review. It went, it went up four seconds later, bang, knocked off for 12 hours. So there are constraints still, which is, I don't think that's a totally a bad thing. No, I mean, part of it was like, right, the whole free speech thing and like what can be said and can't. There were definitely things on Gab where I was like, okay, I, you're actually a Nazi. Yeah, literally, like literally, literally yes. And some of the things being said were like your feed would just get polluted. Like all the comments on a post about, I don't know, just like masculinity would all be about like, you know, really horrible things related to ethnic groups. And I was like, <laughs> my <laughs> dudes, like, yeah, I'm for free speech, but I don't ever want to see that again. Yeah, yeah. It's un- now, Twitter. The one thing with Twitter that I would love to see change is like, Again, I post a thing on yoga pants and we're like, people sending me like yoga pants porn that they have filmed on their phone like for this reason. And I'm like, can we please like, can we please just ban porn? Okay. I'm going to go out and say, can we just ban that on your platform? I don't want to see that. Do I want to know what yoga pants porn is? I don't know that I do. Oh, dude. It's usually, the thing is like, (laughs) I'm not going to go into detail. I'll spare you that. But Thank you. It was like the most fat, ugly, disgusting people in the world, like ripping their yoga pants off and playing with themselves. I will spare that to you, and then he does not spare me. <laughs> <at all. laughs> it did not spare you. I will you. spare you the details. Does not spare him. <laughs> well, there could have been more details. Will I that's, mean? That's fair. <laughs> hypothetically, that well, was pretty. That was a pretty graphic picture. Well, but yeah, so good no, talking to you, Eric. It was a nice conversation. <laughs> yes. 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 Exactly. It's, if you ever want to get off Will's show, you know how to get off the show. Yeah, exactly. Real quick, <laughs> yoga pants for. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna do. A, I'm gonna do a hard turn from that because I actually, because um, we are still on the subject of Twitter. I wanted to talk about if we can. This yeah. related to all this. The, like what happened with the whole Christian nationalism debate a couple a couple weeks ago? Because I do think it's I do think it's related to this notions of free speech subjects. We can talk about how are we going to talk about them? How are we How are we going to begin talking about uh, different forms of I guess, transcendent morality to begin informing our society. And as we talk about the notions of like sexuality and what's appropriate, right? And we talk about issues of, of the church and effeminacy, we also have this notion of like, well, here's a good way to begin reorienting our society. What do you guys think about this? 
kaboom and this whole, you know, I think that's finally starting to die down, but that was a whole, that was a whole thing that was like all of last week. Yeah. Huge, uh, blow up on Twitter. So this one's interesting. So this is not for the most part, it's not between pagans and Christians, right? but it's an in the camp fight between at least my perspective is basically between like the Christian nationalism guys. And then on the other hand, you have like the G3 guys. Um, so a couple of things that I would say about it. Number one, it's, we're having all these things that kind of blow up and maybe like the yoga pants where you're like, why is this blowing up so big? Mm. Like, don't we all want a Christian America? It seems like we do. Um, so a couple of things are in play. Number one, I think everybody needs to read um, the book, The Age of Entitlement. Uh, really helps you understand that America changed in the 1960s. And what the author says is you had a constitution before 1964 in the Civil Rights Act and you have a different constitution afterwards. So he'll unpack it in the book, but what you start to realize is, he's like, yeah, under the new constitution, you basically have things like, you know, there's no segregation anymore. Now, people think racial, which is not what mostly what this is about, but think about like Title IX. Men and women have to share the spaces at all times. So really 1964 and the Civil Rights Act set all of that up so that the government became this enormous entity for policing political correctness at every level. Wow. That's a very different America than was envisioned by the, the original constitution. But that is the America we've been living under. What's the problem? Why does this have to do with Christian nationalism? Well, because a lot of the people in boomer con conservative Christianity, they fundamentally buy in, probably without knowing it, to the second constitution and post-civil rights America. For example, how many Christians in our camp lost their minds about any discussion relating to ethnicity and nation? Like, kinism, ethnocentrism, you're all racist. How dare you? Like, we, everybody, it's been called race brain, but everybody has been catechized by the post-civil rights mindset. Like, so everybody's like so nervous to be called a racist. Like you, you just trip over your own self to not be a racist because that's like the worst thing in the world. Um, and it's actually very closely tied. So 1960s, you have all the racial issues, which are still causing problems in America. I would argue not so much because of slavery, which happened a century, century earlier and was made illegal. But I think it actually became worse with the Civil Rights Act because now the government is being paid and build, building organizations, bureaucratic power to go around and enforce political correctness, woke ideology, intersectionality. The other thing I'll say about it is our legal system has been weaponized against the American people, right? So you have like Kimberly Crenshaw Williams and all the wokeness CRT stuff. That all came from lawyers. How do we use the court system to leverage power for minorities and people of color? And then later it would become, you know, transgender horses with no left teeth and, you know, whatever weird category you could possibly think of. Again, what does it have to do with, you know, say like the G3? Those guys aren't in favor of any of those wicked practices. I'm not implying they are, but they're still fundamentally operating under this idea of like classical liberalism. Like it's good to have plurality of views. Um, it's good to have, you know, we're, we're, we're not trying to make a Christian government. I think, so you take that like post-World War II consensus ideology, 
you pair it with like Reagan conservatism, which actually wasn't conservative. And, and then you, you pair that with like Baptist pietism. And then you're like, okay, well, you fundamentally don't have much of a political theology other than let's, let's all just have a lot of ideas in the marketplace. One of the other things that came up in that conversation though was that we don't legislate morality, right? We don't want to legislate morality. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding about what law is. Law is morality legislated. So the reason the left wants to go into the public space and they want to force Christian cake bakers to bake gay cakes, the reason that they push so hard to get the right Supreme Court justices and to get Obergfell pushed, right? This is the post-64 world where the law has been weaponized to make political points. That's We've been doing that for decades, right? So all law is legislated morality. But if, if you are thinking like, well, in just like Christianity as evangelism only, right? If that's your viewpoint, then you, you're going to operate in this world where all you do is share the gospel and you don't really have a plan for what happens when people get saved. Let's say you share the gospel with the president. What if Joe Biden got saved? Would you tell him to start enacting Christian law? I would. You know, and so I think this is where the rub is, like because Christians have not developed over the years a robust political theology, we're kind of caught with our pants down. There's division over what the answer should be. Now, to their credit, I think the Christian nationalist side, like because of Rush Dooney, because of Theonomy, because of Doug Wilson, they've at least been thinking about these things a little more deeply for a time. Uh, but like you saw this kind of with G3 where it's like their only answer is, well, we're pilgrims in this world. I'm like, yeah, that's not a political theology. No. It's a political theology of, it's basically like the test has come and you write in like, I'm not sure what the answer is. We don't, <laughs> we're pilgrims. Like that's not a political theology. It, it's just basically saying we're not going to you know, involve ourselves, which I would argue that's, that's probably not good enough at this point in the game. The, the enemy is aggressive. They're taking turf left and right. Like you better start having some teeth to how you're going to culturally engage. And, and I think that's what it comes down to. Beyond political theology, we have no cultural theology in the church anymore. We used to. And so let's redig those wells. That would be my argument. I mean, that's what we've been talking about this entire, this entire conversation is having a, a cultural theology yeah. And working backwards, like a, a, a working forwards, because politics is downstream from culture, a political theology, right? And I guess uh, people are, are hesitant to want to push forward into a political theology because they're already not fighting the battle culturally. Well, you know, yeah. like we shouldn't argue over yoga pants. It's like, no, 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 we're talking about a clash of worldviews. And that clash of worldviews extends all the way down to the level of how we organize the society based on what principles. Like you have to get there. Because if you're not willing to get there, we can see the, the the left or the progressives or whatever, they're there. And so we shouldn't be there. Why? <laughs> well, it, it's you're absolutely right. And it's interesting. I, I was getting my hair cut the other day. And this is kind of like, there was an older gentleman, definitely boomer, uh, sitting in the chair next to me and, and talking to the other hairdresser. And uh, he was like, well, I tell you what, this Joe Biden, he really upsets me. You know, we need to be increasing our military spending because the military is our the heartbeat of this country. Like wow. typical boomer. Wow. Like, 
I don't know what you're smoking, old guy. But that that was BoomerCon, right? So like uh, Ronald Reagan increased, he like tripled the national debt. And the boomers thought he was a hero. Well, he was spending that money on uh, the military. And so it's okay to, you know, overspend if it's on the military because, you know, by God, we're Americans and we love our military. Red, white, and blue. Yeah. Yep. So that, that was kind of the boomer generation, the, you know, going from like World War II gen to boomers. And uh, so he's talking about that. And the hairstylist said to him, yeah, and I mean, like all this weird cultural stuff with transgenderism. And he immediately pivoted. And he goes, well, no, 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 that's none of my business. You know, what people want to do with them, with their bodies, that's completely fine. I don't, I just don't get into that. And I was like, that's why conservatives lost. That's why you lost because you don't know how to fight in cultural space. So what I would say, here's the other thing. I've had people, old friends from different walks of life texting me this week about this yoga pants tweet. And they're like, oh, bro, I'm so sorry you're getting ratioed. Like, I told you to shut your mouth years ago, blah, blah, blah. This is what's crazy. They think I'm losing. Like, I'm watching this whole thing and I'm like, dude, I'm winning. Yeah. Like, they think that I'm literally sitting in my house like, oh, no, I've lost the respect of the establishment. Yes, the establishment respect that I never had. Mm-hmm. Literally, like, I'm not trying to get that respect. The account is growing. More people are hearing about gospel and modesty. They're hearing something contra what they've been told about sexuality. So again, that's that whole like, that's wrapped up in this conversation too. Is like, how do you engage the culture? The number one thing I hear from conservative pastors who don't like the way we engage, it's always, you know, Eric, I just can't get behind like your tone and your posture. It's like something to do with the way your spine is shaped. And (laughs) it's basically... Uh, to quote uh, Pat Buchanan in The Death of the West, and he's quoting Sam Francis. But he's absolutely right. He's like, conservatives have got to learn. The left is aggressive. They are playing smash mouth politics and cultural ground game. And you're just like, well, I mean, I don't want to say something that'd be offensive. Let's just talk about the military and tax cuts. And you're like, yeah, but everybody is fighting. Like the yoga pants thing, I think proves it. Everybody wants to talk about sexuality, clothing, the, the very basics of culture, right? This is the other thing. Why, why do people care so much about clothing? Because clothing is a function of culture and culture is religion externalized. Your mm. culture comes from what you worship. So that's why a pair of yoga pants is so important to the culture wars. So I would, I would tell conservatives and I would tell the guys especially I think a lot in the G3 camp, like love a lot of those brothers, but like, listen, you're going to need a lot more robust cultural theology than the one you've got today. Like if you think that the main point of the culture war is get killed, die and go be with Jesus, well, that's probably what's going to happen, right? You're not going to make a lot of progress culturally. And I said, well, if you want to do that, that's fine. Stop taking shots at me. Stop being Robert the Bruce. I'm fighting in this fight. Like we're going to take the fight to the enemy. And we're going to go out in the public sphere with these ideas. The left's allowed to do that. I'm allowed to do that. This is America. And uh, stop being a coward. Um, not that those guys are, but there is just a lot in the conservative movement of just cowardice, right? You're going to have to speak up about the cow mooing. Yeah. Yeah. There's an image that came to mind when you were talking, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not losing, I'm winning. 
It's like when the Rohirrim ride down in the Battle of the Pel- Pelennor Fields and Theoden yes. goes charging into the into the horde of orcs. He's just slicing through them all. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> that's like men are looking. Yes. They're looking for that warrior spirit, right? Yes. And and where are we going to go charging into battle? Physically, we don't want to do that. Like, but we, men can go charging into battle for culture. And I love what you said. Culture is religion externalized. Because they had, they had said that uh, politics is downstream from culture. Culture is downstream from religion or from consciousness is what I've been saying. And so you just nailed it right there. So where are you going to go, you know, Christian man listening or woman listening? Where are you going to want to go to war for? You can go to war for a worldview. And that's real warfare. That's real yes. true. And you feel it. You feel the impacts. You feel the blows. You feel the words, right? It's like, but you keep fighting. And like, that's the battle that I think men are looking for. But some men. And other men are like, no, 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 we shouldn't, we shouldn't fight at all. We should, we should just let England, you know, we should let Mordor conquer and then we'll go be with Jesus to mix up <laughs> metaphors quite a bit. It's like, no, 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 I'm, yes. I'm going and I'm, I'm going to fight for this because that's, that's, what, uh, that's what God made me to do. That's who I am. Yeah. And by the way, I think that's why like Lord of the Rings is so powerful for people is because like I, I read Tolkien and I'm like, wow, it's like he knows our times. He knows the 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 core principles of that and the issues that civilizations and cultures are going to face and so th- i think that's why it feels timely even today but you look at it and you're like look I-, I think a lot of these inner camp disputes is fundamentally like there's moments where like maybe maybe g3 is like gondor right and they're like where was the rohirrim where was rohan when we needed them and you're like just shut up and show up for the battle okay look Here's the time, you know, and Thadian's doing the same thing. Where was Gondor when the West fall? You know, all this stuff. And it's like, okay. I think that when we march on the Black Gates, uh, you know, in the movie, at least, there's like this scene, right, with Legolas and Gimli where they're like, you know, would you die next to an elf? Mm, I'd die next to my friend. Okay, good enough. Like, yeah. you, you know, in so many points in Tolkien's books where it's like they're infighting and then the enemy shows up and they're like, uh-oh. Like, mm-hmm. I don't hate you as much as I hate them. And so now we have to, you know, we have to join forces. We have to focus on the enemy and we have to destroy them. Because here's the other thing that's really weird. The Christian nationalism debate really highlights what happens a lot of times, which is that we get in these theoretical philosophical classrooms and we're like, oh, now that we're debating, you know, political theology, we're like, well, we actually don't believe in this strategy of engagement Yes, but watch G3 guys the last like couple years. They were actually pretty fiercely engaging a lot of things, mm-hmm. right? So this is where it's like, okay, you say you don't like to fight the culture war. You say that, I think a lot of it is like, they just don't know what to do if they won. Like if you were doing evangelism and people became Christians, like what then? That's the question. And I think they just haven't thought through that yet. Probably at this point, like it's not going to be a lot of winning. Um, but I think that, that that's why I'm approaching it from a perspective of like, you know, everybody in the South for the Confederacy thought that they should just take up defensive positions. And there was one guy and it was Stonewall Jackson. He was like, this is when we attack. Like they'll never see it coming. They, they think that they're big and they're powerful and they're strong. He's like, punch them in the mouth. And so that's like in this ground game, that's what I've tried to say to people is like, you actually have more power than you think you do if you would just be aggressive and stop cowering and 
realize that like courage is contagious. This is why the Theoden thing is so poignant, right? I think men are just looking for somebody to be courageous and to not be afraid of the mob, march forward. And yes, maybe a few times like Theoden, we just scream death and then we charge, right? Take it to the enemy. They're actually not like that, that Maxim conversation with the Maxim lady. Mm-hmm. At first I was like, okay, I really have to like pick my spots. And I was like, oh, this is like punching a two-year-old. Like this is actually <laughs> not hard. Like tons don't, of don't openings. Don't punch two-year-olds. Don't punch don't two-year-olds. Punch two-year-olds. <laughs> but it's like, you know, this is not hard stuff. Like yeah. they're leaving themselves open to attack on every flank. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. And so actually you find that with the left. Like you can actually make a lot of headway. Yeah, so at least you you can land some good strikes in for the for the audience who's watching for sure. And I yeah. like I like what you said, courage is contagious because I think we can run all the way back to the start of COVID, and you can see the churches, you know, that were, that stood up and were courageous. And what happened? All of those churches are booming. I watched a sermon that someone gave the other day. I don't remember who it was, but every church that remained faithful, that stayed open, that didn't do masks or any of that, all those churches are booming. And what happened to the other ones? Well, not the, not that. Right. And so there's like people are looking for someone to stand up and fight. They're looking for a champion, looking for a hero. And, and I think we have the opportunity to be that right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think a, a, big, a big thing I've been thinking a lot about is David in 1 Samuel 22. David is rejected by Saul. And a, a part of him being rejected is that he gathers all the rejects to himself. And then he becomes a rallying point for the mighty men. So if you read in 1 Samuel 22, it says that those men were bitter of heart. They were in debt. They're the enemies of the regime. And I think right now in our moment, this is what I would encourage a lot of men. Like you have, whether you're a father, whether you're a single guy, everybody has some capacity for leadership and impacting the people around them. And here's the deal. If you want to win all the men who are disaffected right now, and there's a lot of them, then you know you, you be like David. And, and fundamentally, what was David? Well, Saul slayed his thousands. David slayed his ten thousands. David was a hyper-competent, courageous, Chad king of a man, anointed by the Holy Spirit, who was not afraid of the enemy. He'd slayed Goliath. So he's on the run. He's rejected. But now all these mighty men are going to flock to him. And so I think for a lot of men to be the leader that you need to be, you just say, listen, you got to be hyper-competent. You got to be hyper courageous and realize you'll probably get rejected by the regime. And that's a good thing. David's stock actually went up. And so for a lot of us, like we're, we're living in fear. We're trying not to get rejected at all costs. And that might actually be the thing that was best for you to be rejected by the regime. And then to draw all these men to yourself and to lead them in what I think is happening right now. This is the other mix in the Christian nationalism. Everybody's fighting to be the next new little big Evo, whatever. Everybody is fighting to be that thing. But you don't win that spot by trying to be just like the establishment that came before you. You win that spot by having a little bit of bravado, right? Pete, there's a reason men love the outlaw Josie Wales, right? Because he was the guy who was like, I don't take nothing from nobody. And I'm bold and courageous. And I'm, gonna, I'm a fighter. That's the prototypical hero uh, that people are looking for in this era. So again, I think there's just a lot of opportunities for leaders in this time and space because there's so many disaffected men. And then, you know, the warning for a lot of, if you are one of the disaffected men, 
don't go the Absalom route. Like Absalom can win your heart too. Some of the men who are out there, right? It said Absalom was more handsome than any man in Israel. Like you can be deceived by a charmer who can steal your heart and then tell you, hey, 20-year-old guys, get a vasectomy. You know, sleep with as many girls as you possibly can. Don't have kids. Like that's the ultimate black pill, right? That's like how, 101, how to become a eunuch. Go follow that advice. So you have to be on guard for that and then find the men who are actually, you know, in the fight. Like the true leaders are going to lead from the front. Uh, I love these stories of men like King Alfred. King Alfred is like a super young man. I don't know if he was like 18 to 21 years old. I can't remember. His brother shows up late. His brother's actually in charge. His brother shows up late to the battle. So he has to fight the Danes by himself. So what does he do? He tells everybody to arm up. He goes to the front of the line. And for like eight hours, they you know, go to absolute bloody war. So like your king is at the front and he won his men's hearts. So I say for leaders to be in the front, be in the mix. Don't hide on the sidelines. Don't, you know, strategically just come in at the right moment to throw one sword thrust and be like, oh, look, I saved the day. You know, your men don't respect that. But again, be courageous, be competent. And uh, I think there's just ridiculous amounts of opportunity on the field right now. Thank you for all of that. That's, there's a lot yeah. of messages in, in, of, of hope for, from their landing for me personally in there. So, yeah. uh, you know, I was really moving to listen to that because I think that's the message of, of hope that Christian men and women and people considering Christianity need to hear. It's like, where is the fighting spirit in this spirit of, in this, in this religion of, of faith and this, in this religion of, of spiritual warfare, really? Like, where is, yes. where, where has this fighting spirit gone? It's like, well, it's, it's in you, right? You can have, it's part of you as a man. And you and you can have it too, as long as you approach, as long as you approach this faith the right way. This can be yeah. your this can be your battle too, and you can earn glory in a very real way. Well, that's why I think like biographies and history is so important too. To to be reading these things, to be encouraged, uh, because look, there's a lot of cowardice in our day, uh, but it wasn't always so. And there's a lot of heroic men who've inspired me. I remember uh, 2020 happened. And a lot of people were like, dude, we need to keep our heads down and just like shut our mouths and, you know, whatever. And I happened to be reading uh, Stonewall Jackson's biography by J.R. Robertson. And just this scene of like, they're, they're actually, this is before the Civil War. And Stonewall Jackson, he's, he's ordered to retreat. And he's manning the artillery. So he's got a couple cannons. And the Mexican army is attacking. They've killed or wounded all of his artillerymen and he refuses to retreat. This is like the first glimpse of like what Jackson would be as this aggressive, courageous guy. And they said like, he's like taking cannonballs that are like, you know, just missing his legs. He's got bullets ripping through his coat. And Jackson is firing all the cannons by himself, which is like kind of impossible, but he's doing it. Well, later his niece, like he becomes the hero. They win the battle, you know? And uh, because he refuses to retreat. And his commanding officer is like, thank God you didn't retreat. We would have got killed. And uh, his niece asks him, she's like, why did, you, why did you do that? Were you afraid? And he said, yes. I was afraid the fighting would not be hot enough for me to prove my worth as a man. And he was dead serious. You know, he wasn't like, it wasn't like showmanship or anything like that. But 
he literally was, his whole life was, I hope there will be a battle that is so fierce that I can prove my worth. Otherwise, I'm just an untested man. So I think that inspired me. I started the Hard Men podcast. I was like, no, you know what? I'm not going to live in fear. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to wait till everything gets better. Like, I'm going to wait out into the middle and everybody's going to think it's stupid. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my tweets and I'm going to push back against the things that I find are absolutely absurd and ought to be said. And, um, you know, it's been good for me, but I, I think the biggest thing, like you said earlier, Will, is that it, it, it's what other men need to see, right? They just need to be inspired to be courageous. Like, as a pastor too and a leader, like, you're doing this for your people, right? When you're being brave and courageous, what is it signaling to your people? That when you go to work and you're told that you have to use the pronouns, people are like, no, no, I don't. Because I've seen other people push back and I actually don't have to do that. Right, but if if their pastors are always like, listen, you know, you just use the pronouns. It's gospel hospitality, and you know, just do whatever they tell you because you know, love your neighbor and obey the government. Right, if that's the only thing that they're seeing, that's what they're going to do in all their spheres and spaces as well. So again, yeah, be courageous, and uh, that's that's ultimately like that's what your people need. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second part of Will Reforms His Coffee, sponsored by Reformation Coffee. A bit of background for those just joining us. I have refined my taste in many things, but coffee isn't one of them. I like drip coffee, diner drip coffee. In fact, when I was traveling overseas, one reason I couldn't wait to get back to the States was to drink drip coffee again, because it's not a thing around the world. Elsewhere, they have two options, freeze-dried coffee, which is surprisingly popular, and espresso, But espresso with hot water, otherwise known as an Americano, just isn't the same as drip coffee. So when I returned to the States in February 2020 from living overseas in New Zealand, my friend Jeff took me out for pizza, because it's also hard to get good pizza outside the US, and to finish off the meal, even though it was late, I asked for a cup of drip coffee. But since I have a coffee sponsor, Reformation Coffee, whose outstanding beans you can try by visiting reformationcoffee.com, and entering the code SUB FREE for one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription, I decided that now might be a good time to upgrade that aspect of my daily routine. And with founder Brandon Lansdowne's help, I've got the gear to make it happen. I've got a burr grinder, a scale with a timer, a Hario V60 pour-over with filters, and a gooseneck kettle. Now, I had no idea how to use these items, so I did what every sophisticated modern gentleman does. I got YouTube certified. So the procedure apparently works like this. You grind 20 grams of coffee for 360 grams of water for a single cup, a one to 16 ratio. And that's why you need the scale. Grind the beans, boil the water, and rinse the filter with the boiling water. Then put in the beans and begin to pour the hot water over the beans. And I think that's probably why they call it a pour over, but I'll get back to you on that. And using the timer on the scale, you measure out a series of pouring pulses each for about 30 seconds as you let the water settle through the grounds. Stop pouring when you reach 360 grams of water, let brew for around three minutes and 15 seconds, and then drink. So that's apparently the procedure. And I can tell you right now, this is gonna be a challenge for me. This is going to be an exercise in patience. Drip coffee is a set and forget kind of thing. And I do French press at home, which is what I'm drinking now. And that's very similar. So now that I have to stand there and delicately craft a single cup and become my own barista, 
What has become of me? <laughs> it's a good thing that I've got a coffee that's worth doing all this for. Reformation Coffee's Guatemala Roast, which might be the best coffee I've ever tried, and I mean that. But I recommend all four of Brandon's signature roasts so you can find the flavors that work for you. Once again, visit ReformationCoffee.com and enter the code SUBFREE to get one free bag of coffee with your monthly subscription. And check back next week as we go from theory to practice, and I brew my first cup of Reformation Coffee using my new toys. Say a prayer for me. And now back to the show. You have a few more minutes to sort of to land the yeah. plane for this in, in individual yeah. men and women's behavior within the church community. Because yes. here, you know, here's here are some of us fighting on the field of content creation, you know, Twitter, podcasts, Instagram, whatever it is, um, or from the pulpit. But you know, individual men and women who who are having to fight this battle, perhaps within their own homes, their own bodies, their workplaces, you know, who aren't called to be on the battle of social media because not everyone is. Like let's bring yeah. let's let's bring this home for how this shows up for the men listening. Like, what does it mean to be courageous in this way in your own individual life today, going forward, to participate in this battle in your own way? Yeah, I think a lot of it, first and foremost, is you've got to be really clear on your principles and your mission. Um, so Pastor Dan and I did a show recently talking about this, but you know, a man's mission should consist of at least three things. We say wealth, culture, and faith. So you start thinking about that in terms of Genesis 128, uh, taking dominion. Okay, you've got that. You start formulating the, this plan and vision for your life. Okay, and then you're like, okay, I need to call my wife into this mission. But what we often find is like, guys are already married and haven't done this, right? So it's like, they got married, but they weren't really calling their wife to a mission. Maybe she was actually calling them to her mission or they have a co-mission or you know, whatever it is. So I think what a lot of guys need to start with is just, okay, look at your own life. Is your mission clear for yourself? If I were to ask you men listening to the show, what is your mission? Faith, culture, and wealth is ours, but what's yours? Right? What is your life aiming at? Where do you want to be on your deathbed? What do you want to be written and said about you? Right? Think through those components. What, what is your wealth supposed to say about what you believed? When you get to the end of your life, are you trying to leave wealth for your kids? Are you leaving productive property? I think you should. Uh, faith. Uh, we talk about things like theological maximalism. We want to have the kind of faith that touches every area of life. We want to create the kind of children who see God present in every sphere. We want to create the kind of children that they don't go to work and say, whoa, I'm not at church. This is work. And so, you know, I don't, I'll keep my beliefs over here. I'll let the pagans rule this sphere. We don't want children like that. And so we have to teach them a certain way. Um, and then when you think about culture, like what kind of culture? We, we talk about it all the time in Ogden, but a psalm singing culture, a joyful culture, a culture where the home is a place of hospitality and rest and relief because of the gospel of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. He's been raised from the dead. Is present with you in all your affliction and suffering. So why would your home be a place that's dour and sad and dreary? It shouldn't be. You shouldn't go home, men, and dump all your complaints upon your wife and your family. If the tenor and tone of your home is supposed to be joy and gratitude because of the gospel, why are you filling it with criticism and with frustrations? Right? So you start thinking about this. Think about mission. You think about your own life. And you say, how do I 
actually bring these things to bear, right? It's like, you're, you're absolutely right. Like most people are not going to be on social media. That wouldn't even be a wise thing to do. Maybe they're there just to like see what's happening and learn some things, whatever. F- follow some good accounts like yours. Um, you, Reformation Coffee, I love that cup. Uh, Brandon Lansdowne. Yeah. yeah, shout out Brandon Lansdowne. <laughs> Shout out to Brandon Lansdowne. I don't know if you know this, but um, his nickname is David Hasselhoff uh, because he rescued somebody from the water. So, yes. Did he really? Yes, yes. And he's uh, apparently chiseled. Um, So, David Hasselhoff, go be a David Hasselhoff. But yeah, I I think so much of it too is like, okay, then you take all of that, you started to think through those things. Then you got to look at like, how am I leading my wife and my family? Right? Courage is going to start in very small places. Like, do you have the courage to say to your wife, hey, will you read this book on modesty with me? Oh. I want to lead you in this, in this way. Um, and, and I think that there's some really helpful things in here. And I think that we're going to have to examine our lives. And I want to have that conversation. I love you. I want to protect you. I want you to be dignified and, and, and glorious as God has called you. So let's read this together. Let's talk about it. I've done the same thing in my marriage. Like, I don't think that we should be doing X, Y, and Z. And really, what does that mean? Like you're saying as a father and husband to your wife, I don't think you should wear that in public. And that honestly, Will, like that takes courage to have those conversations in, in a wise, loving, leaderly way with, with your spouse, right? Um, with your daughters, doing the same thing. If you got sons, you know, having these honest, courageous conversations about sex. Um, look, son, you know, there's pretty women in the world. They're going to tempt you. You're going to be tempted to masturbate. You're going to be tempted to look at pornography. I want to show you a better way. Let me help you get ready for marriage. Let me help you coach you. But like every father knows, like that's a lot of work. That's a lot of conversations, a lot of time spent together. You can't really be a workaholic who's always at work and doing those things, right? So you've got to order your life a certain way. Um, and then, you know, once you go out in the public sphere, assuming that a lot of the household is in order, so you're going to work, you're going to church. Well, I think a lot of it start with the church sphere. A lot of guys need to be courageous in picking where they go to church. If your pastors are cowards, there is no way that you're going to be inspired to be a courageous man. You're just not. It's going to be a constant drip and drain on your life. Uh, you're just going to be fussy in your church and it's not good for you or your family. Like the main thing your family will hear is you talking about why you don't like the church. That's not good. You need to find men where you can say to your wife and your kids, I want you to be like the pastor and his wife. I want you to become like the elders. I want you to imitate their lives and follow them. You look at your own church. You say, can I say those things? Are those things legitimately, genuinely true? Do I have role models for my wife? You know, if you go to a, a, you know, a church where it's like feminism or even complementarianism and the wives run the show, Paul said, your companions will shape you. Why don't you think those women would shape your wife? Well, you want her to be like trad patriarchy wife, but none of her friends are trad patriarchy. Well, that's, that's probably a problem. Um, and then I would say at work, it's the same deal. Like being courageous, being guys who are highly competent, productive. If we want to build Christendom, it's going to take a lot of financial capital resources. It's going to take a lot of high cap guys. 
quite honestly, one of the biggest problems in the church right now, the church is repulsive to a high cap guy, right? He sees like the pastor's like teaching this message where it's like, hey, be kind to all the women. Women don't sin. And the only reason that your money is any good is because you can pay me a tithe and pay my salary. Mm. Major turnoff to most guys who are high cap, right? So pouring yourself into your vocation, leading your people at work well, refusing ESG boards, refusing to participate, maybe reordering your career and your vocation so that you're not a wage slave anymore, right? There's so many ways that that could be applied uh, in that sphere as well. But anyway, that's some of the stuff that comes to mind. And I agree with all of those. And and I've I've witnessed some of these and friends and people I know in other circumstances where it's like, how do we, and it, it sounds like a lot, right? Like it's a, it's a lot to do all at once, right? <laughs> to have the conversation with your wife and be getting a shape and changing and changing your, your yeah. career and questioning your church. It's like, whoa. But when, when the lights go on, when you recognize, you know, that we're living in the, and the, I didn't even know about the second constitution, but it makes sense that we're living in the, in the ashes of a world that was essentially nuked in the 1960s, right? And culturally, yeah. like, okay, well, this is where we're at. Like the, the thing is like, start where you're at, like just pick a direction and start rowing, you know, and you may take the long way around, but you have to start somewhere because the alternative is that you'll do nothing. And, you know, doing, doing anything is better than doing nothing. Yeah. And so many times for men, like I, I will say, like, just pick one thing and nail it. Right. Sometimes when there's so much wrong with your world, this is why I think like the Jordan Peterson advice is always helpful uh, or was always helpful yeah. is like, go make your bed. Well, what is he trying to say? Just start with some of the small things, do them repeatedly and consistently and get better at them. So like, I didn't say I'm going to start a new workout routine with Matt Reynolds and I'm going to revamp my theology and I'm going to do my mission and we're going to deal with modesty all at once. Like that's like a five-year project. But I think it's just like you said, if you can start somewhere, be disciplined in one area, it will build and snowball into the other areas of your life. I think too, like if you read the, like the Roman Catholics on the seven deadly sins, they actually ordered sins in, like directionally. So the reason that fasting was so important and gluttony so bad, like that's the first of the sins in order. Oh, wow. Is because they would always say, if you can't control your stomach, you can't control anything. Like, so I think there's actually some wisdom to the physical side where it's like, if, if you're like super obese or you're fat, you're overweight, you don't take care of your body and you know, you've got to mess with your wife. And that's why I think a lot of the guys in the manosphere, rightly, like they start with getting in physical shape and they find that like, if they can do that one, then all the other, like you become more confident, you, you know, like you're more confident when you're talking to your wife, all those things. So I do think that the physical is something we often miss, um, which is why I've tried to uh, promote some form of physical health. I think, you know, Barbell Logic's a great one, but whatever you do, yeah. fundamentally, like if you can get stronger, like I was reading this in Proverbs 20 this morning, the glory of young men is their strength. God says that. Your glory is your strength. Or, you know, yes, moral strength, but primarily he's talking about physical strength. It's a glory for you to be strong. So if you're 20 and fat and looking at porn, it's like, well, that's not glorious. And you're not going to feel glorious when you talk to your wife or, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, I think getting physically strong can be really huge. And then you'll notice it just like has a ripple effects of that discipline in, in the, the other spheres of your life. 
Yeah, I had I had Matt. Uh, he was the guest on my podcast last week. So oh, nice. yeah, I'll be coming. We're recording, but it'll be coming out tomorrow. And uh, and and there is something there is something to that. And, and to put a couple pieces together, there's a component of like, well, you ask young men like, well, why should I be physically strong? Like, what battle is there to fight with it? And what we've been talking about through this whole conversation is this is the battle to fight because as Chase or Sovereign Bra, who was on my podcast like three weeks ago, said, yeah, great guy. It's like your physical strength and your physical health and your physical vitality feeds into your spiritual vitality. Big time. So if you want to, if you want to put yourself together, if you want to, let's say, resurrect yourself in, 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 a, in a bodily way to get into the fight and feel the vitality to go charging in you know, to, the, to the debate for the, the war for culture and the war, you know, the war for worldviews, it begins with the barbell. That's where it starts. It might not Big seem time. that that's the case, but it absolutely starts there. Well, yeah, and it's so true. I, I was thinking about you know all the work that we're trying to do, uh, New Christian Press, Pastoral Ministry, all that. So like a couple of weeks ago, we're going through counseling. One of our church members, uh, four-day-old baby dies. Um, so you have a lot of like late nights at the hospital, your, your early mornings, you know, you're uh, running ragged with stress, meeting with funeral homes, meeting with family. The stress, physical and emotional toll that that takes. I'm just telling you, like I'm all, I'm 38. So a couple years away from 40, but it's like, I have to barbell train and do cardio number one for stress relief, but, you are carrying, people don't realize this, when you're dealing with other people's stress and hurt and grief and everything, that's just like one thing. Um, you have to have physical stamina. Like you have to have good heart health. You have to actually be physically strong. I tell you, there's times when I was younger pastoring where I was in poor shape and it was like, I couldn't take the punch that ministry is if I wasn't physically strong, right? So yeah, even thinking about you notice it in barbell training, but like Matt will give me some, you know, terrible, hard, horrible workout and I'll call him Matt the Malevolent and I'll just be yeah. like, yeah, it's him. dude, that, those are the days where you're eating and your sleep better be on point because if they're not, like, you can just feel the difference. When you start getting into the heavy, heavy weights, I'm, I think I'm deadlifting now. So like yesterday was like 345. If your eating is not good, that's the difference between hitting that rep and not, right? If you're, sleep deprived, like you're not going to do it. Well, all of that then translates into being a good father, being a good husband. Honestly, I see a lot of guys and I'm like, you're 100, 150 pounds overweight. I, I, it, everything is more miserable. Everything. You know, having been overweight before, it's like, it, it, you're not able to fulfill all your roles in a joyful manner. And then I would also just translate this to, it's like, uh, Ben Garrett, uh, they do the haunted cosmos here. Ben's one of the deacons at the church, but we were having this conversation the other day and, and it's twofold. He said, you know, we need to get our people where they're like, you know, in Christendom, our people are in shape, right? Physically strong, all that. And he goes, but you know, when people are physically pretty healthy, like sex is going to be better. And yeah. he made this comment that I thought was just genius. And he said, listen, he's like, we're not building the new Christendom without great sex. And that's, not only for procreation, but think about like what it does for stress relief, what it does for wives and husbands. Like your wife is happier when she's sexually pleased. Like that's great. And so are you. And so like if, if, if we're going to do this well and there's going to be joy in the home, well, it's not, you're not going to have a joyful home if you're like this sex starved 
person, men or women in the home. So we, that's, you know, that's something that we've got to work out. And it's very much tied to the physical realm, to the physical body. That's amazing. And uh, wow. I'm so glad that you guys are having that conversation. I'm so glad he said that because I agree. These are the, the what, are, what are we talking about in this conversation, except for all the things that Christians, as far as I can tell, have been afraid to talk about physical yeah. fitness, obesity, gluttony, sex, you know, uh, death came up as well. Christian, like, how are we going to, how are we going to impress these values upon the culture? These have been the topics that it seems to me, and masculinity as well, and which is, you could kind of say, is almost the wrapper around a lot of these. How are we going to have these conversations? You just do. You just start yeah. having them because like... Start. Because <laughs> the option isn't there to not have them anymore. Well, and, and, and Will, I also think like, we can think about this from like a business perspective, or you can just yeah. think about like business is fundamentally a good business anyway, is saying... What do pe- what's the need and what can I do to provide value to those people who have those needs? Well, we talked about it a lot with New Christendom Press and the King's Hall. We said, like, what, what is it that we're doing this resonating with people? Well, fundamentally, we're, you know, we talked about courage, but you just mentioned the second one, which is we speak to the taboo. So this is where a lot of the, the church, I think, has failed is it's like, Politics or mm, that's a touchy subject. Let's just not go there. Let's, you know, what have we said? Let's just focus on the gospel. Um, and, you know, sex. We'll, we'll let Cosmo instruct our people. We're not going to talk about sex positions or, you know, sex positions when you're pregnant or, you know, we're c- encouraging people to have lots of babies to be fruitful and multiply, but we're giving them no tools. For like, what do you do for six months? Yeah. You know, like those are things you've got to address. So here's what happens. Like all the secular institutions and media are going to steal your people if you don't address the taboo. And so just like an encouragement to people, if you've got ministries, if you've got teaching ministries, or even if it's just like you dealing with your friends, when you speak to the taboo and you speak with wisdom and righteousness, you're actually going to gain more of an audience. So yeah, not being afraid of those things. because we even think about it, it's like, okay, let's go start a men's ministry in this, you know, current cultural moment. And we're just going to say super vanilla, like promise keepers level type stuff. Like super vanilla, you know, make sure you talk real nice about your wife and pump her up and, you know, ma- make her seem great and your marriage will go great. Well, like, who is that going to win? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly not any of the people that we've ended up winning, right? It's you're speaking to like the normies in the middle who are like, you know, probably not a really robust audience anyway. It's hard to build a base that's not based. Mm-hmm. So th- yeah, just like that, we've gone back to it continually. Like, don't be afraid to say the things that are true that no one else will say. I mean, you you, you do it because you check a box. Like, no, we we talk to men. You know, we tell the middle of the road stuff. Like, we have this. We have a men's ministry. It doesn't inform them of what it means to be a man, but at least you can say that you've done it rather than like, yeah. no, here's what it actually means. Let's right. put it into practice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Does that show up at your church? I imagine that it probably would. Or there's <laughs> perhaps some idea that like, hey, these guys are talking about this in like 15 podcasts. Maybe we should do <laughs> Maybe we should start asking about what's going on. Oh, big time. Well, that's kind of the interesting thing. So, you know, you have kind of your air war with the podcasts. Mm. Um, 
And then you have the ground war, which is like local people, all that sort of thing. What what we've found has actually been really helpful is because of the podcast, like we had a new member meeting, you know, for people who are interested in membership six weeks ago. And um, it was really interesting because almost everyone there had come in the local area because they had heard one of the podcasts. So there was, I don't know, there was probably like 10, 10 different families. And um, I think a majority of them joined. But I was talking to the pastors about this and they said, you know, it's really funny because in years past, we would get these new member meetings and we'd be like, okay, so we believe in patriarchy. And then like half the room would get up and walk out. Maybe like we believe in reformed theology, like a quarter of the room gets up and walks out. You know? So you, you keep talking about like the, the doctrines we believe and people would leave. And we wanted to do that intentionally that yeah. the church did because it was like, well, we're trying to be honest with you. Like that's really who, who we are. But now because of the air war in the podcast, what's happened is we get people who come in, there's like 10 families, like nine of them end up joining and they're like, oh no, we came because of that. Like we actually heard those things, wanted them and then came. And so, yeah, now the church is like, it's, it's become like completely inverted of what most churches and what even this church used to be, which was that whole thing where you're like, well, you know, we, we, we preach kind of like centrally gospel type stuff. And then like over time, we try to like slowly like warm them up to some harder teachings. And we were like, that like never works. It's like a bait and switch. It just, that, that, that's not how you win people. So we've done the opposite and I think had good results with that where you're adding people and the people you add are just super based, right? Mm-hmm. They're not like shocked when you're like, yeah, you shouldn't wear that. <laughs> in fact, most of the time we don't even have to say that because people will walk in and generally speaking, like they'll walk in the first time, they kind of look around Maybe they're not wearing the best thing. They look around, they see the ladies, they, you know, maybe half of the ladies are head covered, half aren't. But, you know, dresses, they're modest. Next week they come, they're not wearing the same thing. And a lot of us are just like, well, you know, that's just part of the culture, uh, the way that imitation works. And, you know, a lot of people loved it and that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's what people are, that's what people are looking for. Help me, help me guide me in my life. Because what I'm getting from culture is not working. And I see it melting down my friends, melting down my families, melting down my communities, melting down the next generation. Let's try, let's try something else. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, you know, even with ladies, you know, this is a, a good one that comes up in counseling. Like people like us, they've heard the podcast, they come, but they've never really done, say, like patriarchy, headship, submission, Ephesians 5, right? And so when they start walking through that process, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, you know, this is a little scary. I don't know if I really like, uh, you know, if I really like this, but it's been so amazing to see too. Like you start implementing the things you're like, okay, nuts and bolts conversations, right? Your husband is to lead you. He's to develop this mission for the family, theological and otherwise. Um, He's going to lead well. You're going to follow. You're going to submit. Usually with women, what it comes down to is like, I'm just really emotional right now and I'm just not sure about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And we say, okay, perfect. Perfect time to exercise this muscle. Do not trust your emotions. Trust your husband. Like, like, don't put your faith in your emotions. You need to lean into your husband, his care, his provision. 
and he needs to respond by leading well, obviously. So, you know, there's like, you're, they're apprehensive about this. And then like two weeks will go by and, you know, it's great because the ladies will be like, I'm so much less anxious and worried about everything. Like my husband is my protector and my refuge. And, and like the lady who in the beginning, like doesn't trust her husband, doesn't know how to exercise that muscle, you know, like four or six weeks into it, she's saying things like, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't know what we believe about like baptism. You know, we're working through this as a family. And I had one lady, she looked at her husband and she said, you really need to research that and tell us, tell me where we're headed in that direction. So good. And I was like, yes, thank you. And the thing is, Will, and this is the best part, like they're happier, they're flourishing, they're thriving, they're realizing, oh, this sounded bad based on everything that I've been taught from the culture. But when I actually get to experience it in the midst of community, it's really good. It's changing my life for the better. Like I'm seeing the fruit of it. And then once you get there, people want it. You know, the people around you see it and then they want that. So I have another question. Are you still good on time? I don't want to. Okay. Okay, cool. So this is something that I've observed is that I'm new in the faith, right? And so I come in and I'm, I hear things like that, like, Yes, finally. And I have friends, men and women who are hearing the same. It's like, yes, finally, I'm so much happier, you know, in, leaning into these biblical teachings, these new, these new people coming into the faith, right? Uh, and there are people in apologia, you can, their tattoos, like they're, they come from the new age, like I did, right? Yeah. There's a lot of that. It's a beautiful thing to see. And they're really leaning into this. And then at the same time, there are people that have been born and raised in the church are like, no, 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 we don't do that. And I, this is not a phenomenon that I understand where it's like you have all these refugees like me showing up like finally solid ground for me to rest on, right? Mm-hmm. And there, there are people who have been standing on the solid ground in some sense and they are resistant to it. This is not something that I understand, but perhaps it's something you can lend some insight into as a pastor. Yeah, big time. I mean, it, it really is. I think some of it is generational. Mm-hmm. So... um because I think a lot of the boomer generation and then a lot of the Gen X, um, so a lot of the older people that you tend to find in congregations, you grew up in the church, whatever. I don't know, for whatever reason, it's like, it just becomes old hat. Um, They're used to a safe world. Um, Even I think a lot of the boomer churches tended to kind of not do so well during COVID. You see like, Think about this. What is the quintessential church that the boomers, as a generation, as a whole, built? Well, the mega church. I mean, they were the ones behind like supermarkets and Walmarts and, you know, big box stores that all look the same. It's a very customer service driven experience. Okay. So then they're like, okay, they, they have their 401k, they feel safe. Even right now, like, the wealth transfer that went to boomers in 2020 was astronomical. So they're not hurting. Yeah. They're not hurting right now. So I think because of all those things, like you look at scripture and it's like when people are fat, healthy, happy, and, and, you know, have everything going for them, it's really hard to get through, right? This is kind of what Jesus is saying to the churches in revelation. Like you're well clothed, you're well fed, you have money and you don't want to listen to me. Because you don't need the help, right? You don't see the help that you need, I think is a better way to put it. So then you go to the younger generations. It's like, they're feeling the hurt. They're, tr- they're early, they're trying to buy homes. They're realizing that like single income wages aren't like a thing. 
Um, they're realizing the stress of a culture that's telling them to be whores and not have children and not build families, but to sleep around, to have game, whatever. They feel all of that so personally and they are in the process of fighting it and going through it. It's, and it's the reason why, like if you go to our church, it's probably 80% of the people are younger and they're people who are just coming to these truths for the first time because they were so sick and tired of the world that they were having to deal with. And when they would go to church, it's like the number of people that come here and are like, nobody knows how to help us. Like we explain the problems and they're like, oh, well, you know, just come to church and like go to small group and I don't really love Jesus and hopefully that will do things. So then you get into all this stuff that like we're talking about and it's like, you know, you, you, you get all these new people in the church, younger people, you know, newer in the faith, whatever. The problems are fresh and the solution of grace and the gospel is fresh to them. And so they really get the issues. Well, then we start doing things like parish groups, right? Where we say like each elder has 20 families and we are going to contact, interface with, get to know, help with catechism. Like we're going to be highly pastorally involved in these people's lives. Well, we start doing that. And one of the first things I say, once we've started the parish groups, I say to all the people in my group, I say, okay, what am I here for as a pastor? I'm here if you need counsel. I'm here if you have you know, marriage problems. I'm here if you're having difficulty at work. Like, call me, talk to me. I'm going to be calling you, asking you how things are going. How's your spiritual life? How are you maturing as a man or a woman, et cetera? And uh, it was like every single one of them, This, I say this jokingly, but it kind of backfired. Every single one of them was like, I need counseling right now. And I was like, oh, okay. And it wasn't like any of the counseling was actually like really difficult issues. It was like, dad, how do I? Like, I, w- I need to buy a house. What should I do? Um, I need to save up for a down payment. How do I do that? Um, my wife is still working. How do I get her home? Like you guys say that we need to have our wives at home with our kids, but like I have student loans. What, what do I actually do? How, how do I get out of this mess? And so I think if you're in the position to be fathers and to say, I can actually help you. I do understand that problem. Here are like five practical things you can do. We walk through that with them. Then they come back and they put the pieces together. Okay, compare that to like the boomer. That person is like super grateful, right? You think of the, what Jesus said to, to the Pharisee who has also the prostitute in the home. He says, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have seen how bad the problem is, they felt it. It's destroyed their life to some extent. Those people are going to love much. And the people who have always, quote unquote, had it together aren't dealing with those problems in large part. Like a lot of boomers are there. They're safe, secure, well-fed. They don't want to hear it. And, you know, uh, Michael Foster has brought this up as well, that it can be really actually true, which is old people, if they've been fools for a long time, they're just vintage fools. Right, there are fools that have had a long time to, you know, ferment and become that way, and then it becomes really hard to get them to see the world differently. Whereas I think with the young people, they're faced with those problems every day, and when you tell them about them, they're like, "That is true. I believe you, and I want your help." I I relate to all of that, you know, having having been forgiven from my sins and understanding the power of grace and understanding yeah. the power of regeneration, like. This is real and it's precious to me. I, I, I was eating at the pig's trough. 
like I look back now and I'm horrified at the way at the way that I that I lived in contrast to where I'm at now. And so mm. it's, it's so it's so I don't even I don't even have the word precious priceless um, in a very powerful way. And it's like I, I want to share it and I want to be in communities of people who appreciate it and have that as well. And and uh, I'm grateful to have those people around me. And yet I recognize that people come into church and they they like do. You, know what this gift of salvation is that we have like i don't know i've just always had it it's like well (laughs) yeah praise god for that but (laughs) and i also think too like i always go back to this like this isn't a new thing to do but john the baptist when he was preaching he you think about especially like luke's gospel john the baptist is preaching and everybody's asking him very actually specific questions he said you need to repent be baptized follow follow christ you know be prepared for the kingdom but, but notice all his advice is like very practical and specific. Well, he gives us one direction to the soldier. Stop using your power to exhort people. Stop taking advantage of people because you have a spear in your hand. To, to the tax collector, stop robbing people. And in fact, go pay it back. So I think that as a church, like we just have to get a little better at understanding when you call people to repentance, we're actually not calling people to repent of sins in general. But we're calling them to, to repent specifically of like whatever is going on in their life. So it could be that you have a wife who's not having sex with her husband. And you're like, look, you need to repent. Let's talk about 1 Corinthians 7. No, wait, let's go back to Genesis 1. Let's talk about the glory of men, the glory of women. You're a daughter of Eve. Like your DNA is motherhood. Like you've been married for 10 years. You're chasing a career. You have a ton of debt. You have some babies with your husband. Have sex, have babies. This is your mission. This is your glory. This is your legacy. So you see what I mean? It, it has to get very practical. And it also implies you have to know people, right? It can't all just be pulpit ministry. You actually have to like know the people, know the problems they face, and then provide practical, workable solutions. And I will say this, it's intimidating pastorally because a lot of times when people first come to you, you're like, I actually don't know how to help you, right? But this is my old journalist trick from my journalist background. I can learn anything. It may be a few phone calls away. I might call Michael Foster or Will or somebody else and say like, hey, how do you counsel a young guy who's addicted to porn? Like what resources do you give that guy? Right? Maybe I didn't have the answer five minutes ago, but I can get one. Right? So that's the other thing, not being intimidated by new problems that you see. You'll see them. You'll learn from them. You'll to some extent, become an expert on it. And then you'll have it for the next guy coming down the line. But anyway, focusing on like, you have to have practical solutions. What does actual repentance for this person look like? Can I ask a a semi-personal question? Yeah. Sort of, what's it like being on the front lines? Like you're on the front lines we talked about in the Twitter war, spontaneously thrust into the middle of it. But in a very real way, in pastoral ministry, you're seeing people show up in your office you know, like triage carrying these wounds from from the world, right? And with in a very specific moment, like this sort of can can you invite people into that moment? Perhaps for you as a man, as a pastor, et cetera, fighting the war on these both these fronts. Yeah, they're they're very different. You're absolutely right about that. I think on Twitter, um, to me, like you realize you're kind of going into the den of vipers, and so you, there's a lot more like flame throwing. I feel like and like. <laughs> chucking rocks at a herd of dogs and like then you're <laughs> getting attacked by the pit bulls. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like got one feel to it. 
I would say the thing that I love most, obviously, is pastoral ministry. I think dealing with people locally, when they join the church, when they're members, they come in for counseling, they come in for, you know, let's say marriage counseling. Um, they haven't been in our church usually. Like when we first do the intake, that's when you find a lot of the problems. I would say that the overwhelming feeling that I have in that situation, um, I think of in the gospel account where it says Jesus looked on them and he had compassion because they were helpless and harassed sheep. And I would say the the level of empathy, compassion, um, I just feel their hurts. It is so hard because I think so many people in in that chair, right? We're not talking about Maxim Lady at this point. Right. She's not this innocent flower of a victim. But we're talking about people who are coming to you and they're saying, I know you're right. I don't know how to do this. And I'm really discouraged. And I mean, it could be so many times like, you know, we've had a lot of these lately. I mentioned like the loss of children, the um, miscarriage, loss of children early on. Uh, but dealing with those and dealing with the women, especially, it, it's just given me this deep sense of pastoral shepherding care for them. Like you, you'll develop this deep love for the family where you start to feel like we lost that baby. Then we said as pastors, I feel like I lost my child. Like, because I did. We did. We we lost that as a family. But you also get to get in that interior space and you get to deal with people's fine china. And so it's something you have to be delicate with. Um, but to be able to experience that, this is also where all the good stuff is. When people let you in, when people change, when you have the wife who's like learning how to submit and saying this is glorious and good. Um, when when you have wives who are like asking my wife, like, I don't know, how do I submit? I don't know how to do it. And then and then my wife is like, I'm like, well, what'd you tell them? And my wife is like, well, you know, I told her to cultivate gratitude about her husband more frequently. And then I told her, stop complaining so much. You complain about your husband a lot. Like, stop it. So, and, and, and that's all in the context of like, we love you. We're spending time with you. We're uh, pouring into our people. To get to watch that happen is, I don't know. It, it's just one of the most glorious things in life to see people change. Like I said, I, I had posted the other day on social media. There's nothing more glorious than when one sinner repents. Like the, 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 we're told the host of heaven in Luke's gospel, the host of heaven rejoices at one sinner who repents. And so when you kind of get to be the midwife of that delivered, you know, infant of repentance, as it were, uh, to stretch that mat- metaphor, it is just a powerful thing. And so I would say, this is where I think a lot of pastors are actually missing out. Like if you're just preaching from the pulpit, if you're just the guy lobbing bombs on Twitter, if you're just the guy who has like air war ministry, that's actually, it's inverse for us, right? Where we say like, no, the church and everything local, that's actually first. What you see on Twitter, what you see uh, on, through the podcast, that's an overflow of our household as a church and as pastors. And the thing that we love, the thing that we find so much power in doing and encouragement from is that, you know, in that counselor's office, getting to see somebody repent, like a, say modesty. When a woman is like, I was, I was talking to one of our parishioners the other day about this. She had seen the tweet 
And she said, yeah, actually, when we first started coming to this church, I had no clue what modesty was. Uh, I didn't realize how like immature we were. She said, like, pretty much the only thing I owned was yoga pants. And she said, we came like three or four times. She, like, they listened to one of the podcasts while going to the church on modesty. And she said, you know, I was in tears. We went home. And um, I, I told my husband, I said, I think we need to repent. He was like, I think so. And he said, we, we gathered them up. I had like 20 pairs of yoga pants. We threw them away. And my husband took me and we, we didn't have a lot of money, but uh, we went out and he bought me like four dresses. And I was like, you know, it's really hard to quantify how amazing it is when God's at work in people's lives like that, especially in this culture. Like the diamond shines even brighter in this like cesspool of filth. But that really becomes like pastorally, just your love for your people in those moments. Uh, it, it just, it grows exponentially. That give you a sense of hope? Oh, big time. Yeah, I think so. And, and this is what I tell guys too. It's like, when you look at Twitter, like there's not a lot, like this latest Twitter debacle, there's not a lot of things to be like super hopeful about. There's just mostly like, you know, people sharing like Smurf porn and stuff on, on my feed. It's like ridiculous. But, but yeah, absolutely. When you, you get to see the change up close and personal, it makes everything worth it. And then it makes it where, honestly, you start to see that God is actually at work right now. There's huge opportunities. Um, and the ones that are up close and personal are more precious anyway. So, you know, that, that whole thing of like, heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. I, I would say the same thing. Like, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you're gaining hundreds of followers on Twitter a day. Like, how does that not go to your head? Like, I literally don't care because like, I know like later I'm going to be meeting with this family and I've seen what God's done in their life and I've got to walk through that with them and there's hurt and there's pain and there's good things. And, you know, you, I've seen six-figure wives give up their job so that they can come home to be with their kids. And I know the sacrifice it is, and it was hard on them. And yet they're joyfully embracing all the hardship they're facing because the guy's going back into the workforce. And you watch that and you're like, there are a few things in life that are more precious than just faithful obedience and whatever it is that God's called those people to. So yeah, definitely that gives you hope that, you know, God is at work. God is changing people. He, they're, there are people who are getting it. We get to spend time with them on a weekly basis. And that's really where all of the, the bulk of the joy comes from, is from them. There's a young man, a young woman, first half of their 20s listening right now that's struggling to find their way inside or outside the church, looking at the world, confused about their place in it. What would you, what would you say to them out of your experience? Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, you can't do it alone. I think Satan and the enemy loves to isolate people. Uh, I've been in those positions, even believe it or not, I was like pastoring a church in a small town and I was pretty isolated. Didn't have a lot of peers, didn't have a lot of friends, didn't have a lot of people who saw the world the way I did, shared the same mission, et cetera. And that was really dark and hard. Um, and there's a lot of challenges. Like the world really is, I think, against uh, people who want to live anything resembling like a trad Christian faithful life, right? You have a lot of forces at work against you. All that's true. I would say one of the, the biggest things you can do is find a community 
particularly for men, find a gang of men who have your back, who can fight with you, who can rib you, who can tell you to shut up when you're being too emotional, who can discipline you in the ways that you need to point out your failures, to show you the ways that you can grow. But I think more than anything, just to cultivate that friendship. Uh, I was saying this to another pastor friend. He said, you know, I, I feel down in this, this time. You know, it's so discouraging. And I said, you know, I want you to be encouraged by what I'm about to tell you. I don't feel that way at all. And I'm not saying that to rub it in your face. I'm saying it because it doesn't have to be this way. But it is hard work for people to find the right community, right? I think there's a few places right now that are doing really well. And I would just encourage people, if you're like Naomi and you're bitter, right? She said, call me Mara because I'm bitter. If you're like Naomi, you look around you and the churches and the communities and you say, where is Bethlehem? Where is the house of bread? You remember there was a famine in the book, early in the book of Ruth. And so Naomi just says, she says, well, I've lost my son, you know, my sons. I've lost my daughters, except for Ruth. My husband's dead. What do I do? Well, in the midst of all the famine, where's their bread? Where's God delivering? Where are their people feasting and rejoicing and prospering? Like we don't get to pick where God puts his blessing. But that was one of the things I realized with Refuge was like, I don't know. I can see that God's blessing. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to go where the blessing is. So I think being able to find that community where you can find nourishment for your soul is going to be pivotal. And that may be a lot of hard work. It was for me. It didn't happen right away. It took years. But I think finding people that you can stand next to, we are created for community. And I think if you can find that, look, don't be looking for perfect by any means. Uh, but once you get in the midst of that community, I think that's where you start to see hope. You know, um, I think about my life and all the darkest times that I've ever had. The things that always brought me hope was like a friend would call you, friend would show up, friend would have lunch with you. Well, just, you know, think about that. If you're in despair about the way the world is, you need flesh and blood face-to-face people who can encourage you. Um, and, and, you know, I would say too, don't, don't discount things like social media. Like I found my gang on Twitter, which seems just absurd, but I was just throwing out truth seeing what stuck to the wall. And really, I was, I was saying, who resonates with this? And there was actually a church in a community with Dan and Brian here who said, we're actually 100% on what you're saying. Like, come do this work with us, you know? And so, yeah, I think if you can find that camaraderie, uh, it's something too that one of the things I was reading was uh, Bronze Age Pervert, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I really liked in that book, uh, this is back in like 2020 before I came to Refuge. Towards the end of the book, he talks about like these bands, roving bands of like male friendships, right? Like this concept. And I was like, oh, that's absurd. And then you read like the old Greek mythology and you're like, "Mm -hmm. no, I think that's actually true. Uh, You start looking at it for your own life and you say like, what is one of the pervasive, most, you know, biggest problems that men face in our culture today? Uh, I think it's that they don't have friends. And, um, you know, I saw one of my favorite memes. Uh, it was like, everybody talks about the miracles that Jesus did, but nobody talks about the miracle that he had 12 friends in his 30s. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that that is actually true. Most guys don't have yeah. two friends. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, they're clear on this. 
uh, a brother, there is a brother who is born for adversity. A man, many companions will come to ruin. But you're looking for that guy who will bleed and die with you in the fight. And uh, that really does get you through the, the difficulties. Yeah, I, I, I can second all of that for the men listening is to not try and go at it alone. To not no. be out there trying to fight the battle on your own. Find brothers, find, find where the bread is. You're going you're gonna to need it. Because one of the first things before I found Apologia, I, was, I went to a church here in Phoenix and I went to a gathering of the men who were there. And um, you know, I, I learned some valuable things from that group, even though we weren't ultimately going the same direction. I said, Satan tries to get you alone out there in the wilderness so he can pick you off. Absolutely. Right. And I was like, once I heard that, this was during COVID. Once I heard that, I was like, yes. Brand new Christian at the time, like, but yes, I recognize that. And there are a lot of alone young men out there that are getting picked off. Yeah. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like COVID was a big, even for me, like I, I, I would say I was pretty based then, um, but it was just a wake up call. Like the people that sometimes you could think in the regime, you know, where you're like, oh yeah, maybe they're bad. I don't know. But you know, it, was, it wasn't just like out on full display and then 2020 happened and you were like, no, they literally hate me. Yeah. And because of that, I'm just going to need people who financially, spiritually, and in every way, like they have my back. Um, and, and I would say too, like one of the biggest problems I see in a lot of churches with men is we talk to a lot of guys who are like, yeah, I'm kind of like the only guy in my church who sees the things uh, that you're talking about. I fully agree with you. But here's the deal, man. Like, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. But I, like, I'm just going to change this culture from the bottom up. And I'm like, uh, I, almost never. Yeah, That's almost never going to happen. Um, and the reason I say that is I've been a pastor and an elder at churches and I couldn't change the direction. I couldn't fix the missional drift. Um, so if if you're the guy at the very bottom, like number one, like God hasn't given you the authority to set the direction of that church. That's reality. He hasn't. And what I found in my life doing both things, because I've done that too, you're actually better off just finding a group of people who agree with you and then putting your hand to the plow instead of spending all that energy, time and effort basically wasted, not making progress, just like infighting, not good for that church, not good for you. Um, and you do, it's hard, it's scary. You have to put a lot more work into, for us, it meant moving states. Uh, it meant like, it felt like the equivalent of like going on like a dating app and be like, I guess I'll put myself out there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's hard. There's a lot of things that didn't work out, but it ultimately got us to the place we needed to be. And I think if you can get there, again, just to go back to your original question on this, like that's where you're going to find hope. When you have a pastor in the pulpit who's preaching against naggy wives, when you have pastors who are counseling young men and they're like, listen, nobody is going to address female sins, but we will. Mm -hmm. Like you actually have advocacy for your marriage then too. Because like if, if, like if you're a, a member at Refuge Church and you come to us and you're like, my husband's a pig and blah, 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 blah. I mean, we're going to hold him accountable. We're also going to hold you accountable. Yep. Right? So it's like you're on even footing, like in this whole world's against you. Like you've now found a community where it's kind of like evens the scales out. 
and we're going to treat you equitably. Uh, you're going to have encouragement. Um, yeah, just having guys who are faithful, who are crushing it around you, it inspires you. I'm a different person for it. Uh, way less fearful. It's just, you know, being able to, to do that. And then uh, it's the practical stuff too. You know, when you have guys who can actually help you, uh, even as a pastor here, I'm like, you know, you go through like home buying and stuff like that. And you, you got a war council of guys who bought houses and done real estate. And you're like, what do you think? What do you do? And they're like, don't do that. That's stupid. You know, here's three ways to think about it. That's what gangs are for. You know, gangs of men, brothers who have your back to help you uh, so that you can, you know, you can work on that legacy, that mission work. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this have this conversation is that you are one of the first pastors who's openly talking about women's sins. I don't think you can build a successful church today if you're not willing to have that conversation, especially mm-hmm. because the men won't feel safe to know that, hey, like, is there, is there going to be some mutual accountability in this room or am I just going to have to take it? And I'm having next month, I'm having a, a pastor named David Edgington on. And, oh, uh, nice. and are you familiar with his book, The Abusive Wife? No, I'm oh, not. Yeah. So, so, um, my friend Annalise from Feminine Not Feminist, she has like 200,000 followers on Instagram. She recommended this book. One of my clients read it, then I read it. And it's this incredible short book, 150 pages about, you know, what, a, what a, an abusive wife looks like in a Christian marriage and how there are so many pastors and counselors that do not want to talk about it. And it's like, and I can recognize some of these things, like this is very, very real. And so he was recently, uh, so I was going to have him on. He was on someone else's podcast and he just blew up because men are ready to start talking about this. Like, hey, are we going to hold women accountable for their sins now so that men can feel safe to step forward and that they won't be undercut by their own pastors? So that's why, uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is you are stepping into that fray. And the yoga pants is just a manifestation of that larger challenge to the unchecked women's power, I guess. Oh, big time. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember, this is probably two years ago, I was talking to an older pastor. So he's nearing the end of his ministry, I guess, mid-50s, late 50s, somewhere in there. Uh, but he had, he had told me, he said, you know, 15 years ago, it was pretty typical when you would do marriage counseling. You would sit down with people and you're like, okay, the guys, you know, like, I understand why Mark Driscoll went off on some of the guys. Like, sure. guy's an idiot. Guy's just being dumb, blah, blah, blah. And he told me, he said, more recently, he said, I feel like it's almost completely flipped. He said, I have these ladies who are like, I want a divorce. And he's like, what's going on? Is he hitting you? No, no, he provides well for me. Oh, well, like, what are you upset about? I just, he's not emotionally available like I would want him to be. And the pastor said to me, he was like, I've just, I've gotten so sick of it where it's like, these women actually have nothing to complain about. And he said, furthermore, he's like, you know, he was just coming to the red pill moment that, that I'd had for a while. But he goes, Eric, I think a lot of these women are actually the problem. And I was like, uh, yeah. Like you have a culture who has told women that they don't sin. You have a culture, like we talked about it on the King's Hall recently, but um, I think it was Brian who mentioned it. But, you know, we were talking about how college professor asked a class, like, what are men's sins? And they're like, oh, men are angry, abusive, alcoholics. Like, people are just rattling them off. Yeah. And they're like, what are women's sins? What are female sins? It's like quiet for like two minutes. And then finally somebody's like, uh, low self-esteem? Uh, like, 
your biggest sin is that you don't love yourself enough. Like you need to rosé all day and have some girl, you need to have some wash your face you time. But but that's what we've taught our women. Okay, so then you get into marriage counseling, you get into the difficulties of life and it's like yeah, this woman, okay, you have a woman in a marriage who doesn't think that she sins. She's told that she doesn't sins. And then there was a whole complementarian movement for so long that was like, hey, if there's any marriage problems, it's the husband's fault. Yep. I remember talking to Michael Foster about that same thing. Like we had gone through some pastoral ministry together and we'd watch these older pastors, like their wife cheats on them and leaves them. And they're like, this is your fault. Like your responsibility ultimately, okay, I can buy that. Your fault, Mm -hmm. those are two different things. And, you know, you can't just, if you're just telling guys, no matter what happens, it's your fault. Who is there to actually, again, to balance out the scales and say to the ladies, no, like you are a naggy wife. I wouldn't want to be around you either. You're disrespectful. You're rude to everybody. Yes, your marriage is going to be miserable. You need to repent of that. That's horrible. Um, and, and by the way, the, the other cool thing I would say about the, the church situation where we are, the women come to appreciate this. The women will say things after sermons and services where they're like, thank you so much. I needed that reminder. Right? Because any, any of us, men or women, I mean, you think about as a man going to church, pastor loves you. He preaches a hard word you're a repentant, faithful Christian, what's typically your response afterwards? You actually are grateful, right? You're grateful for the hard word that reshapes you and it's going to cause you to grow. Ultimately, it's hard to hear. You know, the word of God cuts. That's definitely true. But yeah, it's also great to just have a a church full of ladies who appreciate, yeah, thanks for dealing with me being fussy around the holidays and nitpicking my husband and, you know, not being sexually available, all those things. Do you have any specific advice for how to guide women to that? Because I, I think a lot of women are opening to that idea now. You know, like, okay, I need to be discipled and how to be a good wife, how to be a good woman. It's not what culture has told me. But there are a lot of women that are very resistant to being told anything, but who might otherwise be? Like, obviously, you have the seared conscience you know, kind of women that are so hard in the paint for sexual liberation or whatever. Yeah. But I think that there are a lot of women who, and I take a lot of flack for this. I think that there are a lot of women that genuinely love men and want to be partners with men and want to, maybe they've made mistakes in their past. In fact, they probably have, but they want to move on from those mistakes because they recognize and there's still time, but they don't know how to be led down that path. And they're looking for men and women to lead them. Men are leading the conversation currently, and that's changing. But like, as men trying to communicate that to women, do you have any have any guidance to give to us? Because there are lots of us that find ourselves thrust into this unexpectedly. Myself, I didn't expect to find all these women trying to deprogram from feminism, but they are, and it's glorious to see. And we're learning the conversation as we have it. Yeah, I think it's it, one of the interesting things, like with the Hard Men podcast that I found was, I, so I set out and I was like, I'm going to do the podcast. I'm going to preach hard and direct. My message is going to be hard and direct because I'm speaking to men. And one of the really weird (laughs) things I found was that women were the ones who were like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? What? No, no. Women are like, they want to hear like emotional talk and like, you know, that this is why they're finally like, girl, wash your face. I think that they're so sick and tired of that. A lot of these women that they actually, thank you. You know, somebody just said it like it was. Um, I I think that actually wins more women than we might think. Mm -hmm. So, 
women want to follow strong leadership. So I would just say to men, if, if you're a man who's leading a woman through this, like I am not saying be abrasive and rude, right? but I, I am saying be convicted, lead authoritatively and lovingly. But I think there's a sort of like, there's a ballsiness about it that is attractive to the right women. And I, I think it's that whole thing of like, what I've typically seen in complementarian camps is they're like, like a woman will say to me in counseling, so you're saying I have to submit to your husband. And I'll say, well, yeah. And also you should know that that word is like a military term for one higher in rank than you. Meaning like in this relationship, he's your commanding officer. Like you have to listen to him. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, I'll have to work on that, but you're right. That, I, you know, that is the All Greek right. word. And it goes surprisingly well. What I saw in a lot of complementarian circles was they'd be like, so you're saying I have to submit to him? Well, yeah, but okay. So, but the thing is like, remember there's like mutual submission before that. And remember that like, he's loving you as Christ loves the church. So like, you know, don't kind of like shuffle that one off into the corner. Let's not really hit on that one. Well, what you're doing is actually stunting the process of like full repentance. Yep. Like, and, and I will tell ladies, I was like, well, okay, yeah, submission. But part, and that while they're there, I'm telling the husband, I'm like, okay, the thing is, like, you're modeling submission, but not to her. So when you ask her to submit, actually in that passage, the first person who's submitting is you to Christ. Mm-hmm. So the way that you lead through this discussion, say with modesty, say with any other topic, is that your wife has to see you submitting to Christ, submitting to the church submitting to the teaching of the word of God. And one of the things you have to convey to her is, I'm trying to lead you as I live in submission to Christ. So one of the reasons a lot of patriarchal camp guys, I think, get this screwed up is because they're like, I don't submit to nobody. Like, I don't listen to my pastors. I'm this hardcore libertarian. Basically, like you're an anarchist. And then there's this one area of your life where you demand that your wife submits to you. That's also not what that passage teaches. So Ephesians 5. So that's why I think too, it's like lead boldly and authoritatively on this. Teach through it. You know, again, books like Masculine Christianity can be really helpful. But then I think also just modeling like, honey, I want to lead you in what I think is biblical because I want to live in submission to Jesus. So we're going to go to church. And furthermore, we're going to choose a church that actually honors Ephesians 5 that counsels Ephesians 5. We're going to do that. And what I found with my wife particularly and a lot of other guys and their wives in the church, if she sees you submitting to Christ and leading in that capacity well, it's actually a lot easier than people think to have her heart start softening to these issues, right? Like, if you come at it and you're like, kind of like the prototypical like woman get me a sandwich like while you're being an idiot of a leader like you don't go to church or any of that and you're like hey you have to do whatever I say I mean let's be real like even if like I wouldn't really want to follow a guy like that right you're making submission very difficult Uh, so yeah start with yourself start with Christ uh, and your submission to him and then show her that that's that's why you're leading in the direction you are lead with moral authority 
Don't just leave yes. with physical authority. Because I think yes. I think that's what the manosphere, that whole red pill world gets absolutely wrong, is that they talk about leading with, with physical authority, red game and stuff like that. Like you have to, not necessarily with any threats of violence or anything like that. I don't think they go that far, but it's like, you have to be powerful and hold frame and dominate over your woman, right? Like dominate your wife, dominate your life is a, is a headline that I saw. And it's like, and that's a, that's, yeah, that's a real thing. And it's like, okay, um, but there's also this thing of, called moral authority. Like where does your moral authority comes from? It comes from Christ, which means that you have a standard, you have standards of behavior that you have to follow. And you're, you're shepherded by your pastor in that regard. So you as a man are in submission to those higher than you, right? And so you've re- you screw up and you've received grace, so you know what it is to give and o- to offer grace. And so you fit yourself into a chain of hierarchy because you're doing that to embody the moral authority. And that's where leadership comes from. That's what reorients the ship. But if you as a man don't embody moral authority, it's, it's unreasonable to expect that anyone will, will willingly or happily follow you. Now, God commands us one way or another, right? Submission is, 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 is required, not because the man has the moral authority, because that's what God expects from the woman. However, there's a lot that you can do as a man to get into that position and make the whole thing go much, much easier and step forward so you can allow your wife to step back. And that's, that's yeah, what big, yeah. Yeah, so I think a lot of it is like, when you're talking to ladies, you're talking about submission and you're saying, look, don't, you're, you're not waiting for perfect, right? Nobody, imagine if the roles were reversed and it's like, well, I only have to love my wife if she's already perfect. Like, it's going to be a very difficult situation. God has called you to love this person and submit for the wife, to submit to your husband as is, right? And there's going to be clunkiness. But really, if you start thinking about it too, it's like, well, if you really want to encourage him to continue leading and leading well, then you've got to uh, refuse to be nitpicky, complainy, etc. I, I think this is too, this is one thing that I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but I, I seem to hear less of this in the red pill mo- movement where it's like, there are points where it's like, as a man, yeah, you can have frame and game and all those things, but it's like, you also have to be cognizant of the fact that like somebody has to be speaking to the woman. Like, you know, the guy can't fix every problem. There might just be like problems with the woman um, where it's like you, you actually have to address her too. And it is super helpful. Most people would kind of figure this out, but especially if you've gone to like marriage counseling, there are things that like your wife or your husband may not listen to you all the time. And like having a third party to speak into that, like we hear others differently. So it's like needing the backup. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's like, I, I don't know if the, there's probably spaces in the red pill where they address stuff, but it seems like it's mainly frame and game. And I don't know if it goes beyond that. It doesn't. It doesn't. The men, the men have no backup. Like the, the, the authority yeah. in the home is established on their own authority, right? Which is, why, which is why you have the ultimate evolution of the red pill is this thing called dread game. The way that you keep yeah. your wife in line is you continue, you give her the subtle hints that you're going to leave and that keeps her in a state of anxiety and fear so she does what you say. Like, so they're actually encouraging that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrible. It's awful. It's awful because, because there's, no, there's no authority b- besides what you can assert. And a lot of guys begin to recognize that, well, that's kind of silly, but they still, don't, they still don't become godly men. So that's why they start think, talking about things like, Polygyny, 
you know, having multiple women. Well, I'm just a high enough value man, so I can just do what I want and I'm the rare quantity. So you got to stick around for that. That's where that dialogue goes. Right. Wow. Yeah. So worldviews have consequences, right? And they, and they get, and that's, this is a thing is that they get real mad when you challenge them on that from a, from a biblical perspective. They hate it. And I I think it's because on, on some level, they know how broken it is and, and, oh, you know, love is weak and feelings are weak and emotions are beta and all that stuff. They end up having to shave off parts of their own humanity in order to ride mm. out their own worldview into the pit, essentially. Right. And, and so that's why we're seeing a lot of the reaction to Christ. I think that we're seeing right now. Yeah. It's interesting too. I mean, you know, we mentioned it, but like Rollo had that long, you know, get a vasect- vasectomy, that whole tweet. <laughs> yes. um, I think that one did bigger numbers than yours. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting to me about that is it is kind of the rational conclusion to everything else they've been saying, though, if yeah. you don't know Christ. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it actually makes sense. I mean, I, I've heard Jeff Younger say similar things, like super messed oh. up situation, but it's yeah. like... The solution is never get married, use a surrogate, whatever. I, I think this is the beauty though of like Christianity is number one, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not the first time in human history that it's been an absolute cultural dumpster fire. Not by a long stretch. <laughs> yeah. Think like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. It's pretty but, bad. We're not there yet. Well, uh, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but 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 the interesting thing is it's like, okay, you have really horrible, heinous situations. Our society stuff yeah. warranted. This is the thing too. It's like, what gives me hope is I see people, myself included, but I see whole communities of people who are getting married. They're having children. Wives are being faithful. I think, and this is where I was getting at before at the red pill. It's like, you need more authority in your life than just your own to be successful. I actually think we need church authority. Absolutely. To a certain extent within spheres, we need civil authority. Like it's not, it can't just be you as a guy trying to work everything out in your life. So again, I go back to like with the church, it's like, it's actually really helpful. I tell my wife this, you know, for all the people who are like, oh, you're a patriarchal abuser. I tell my wife this all the time. I say, if there's ever a time where you think that I am in sin and I'm not listening to you, then you, like you have my permission, go to the elders. Please. Please, for my sake, for your sake, for our marriage, for our children, like, you know, the, the absolute nightmare scenario, I, I counseled these. So this is why I'm thinking about it. But like when wives are like, oh yeah, my husband refuses to stop using porn, but he says it's good for us. And I'm like, okay, yeah, <laughs> you, you should go to the elders. Probably do that. Or yeah, my, my husband is committing adultery. What do I do? You go talk to the elders. Because at that point, you're going to need the institutional authority and those other men in his life to go be men to him, which you can't be as a woman. But you go as men, go to that guy, and you're like, listen, bro, we're going to break some kneecaps or you're going to get in line. Like, what are you doing? And, um, you know, that, again, that is one of the helpful things about church and community and other spheres. Whereas, again, like Red Pill, it's like, it's all on you. And I'm not made as a man. I'm not made to carry the weight of every sphere of authority that God has ordained. Right. That's right. And, and I, in talking to women, um, 
you know, secular women who are not down with Christian patriarchy, the thing that comes up a lot of the time is, you know, what about abusive husbands? Like, okay, yeah, that's, that's a thing. However, that was less of a thing in the past in many ways because men had the check of their pastors around them, but also their brothers. Because the guys yeah. would come over for poker night or whatever, right, or work on the car, and the guy would say a crossword to his wife, and the guys would all make eye contact with each other. And then one of the guys would take you know, the owner of the house, the husband out afterwards, like, if I ever hear you talk to your wife like that again in front of me, we're going to have a problem. Right. Oh, yeah. And so this atomization of, of men that has happened, right? The atomization of the family has made things worse because men don't have these accountability structures around them. You build these oh, accountability, you build these structures around both men and women and children and families. It's like suddenly we all snap back into place because we have a boss, like in, in terms of our home life, in terms of our personal life. And that matters. Oh, yeah. Big time. I, I was even thinking about this the other day in uh, Goodfellas. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, in their community, like Ray Liotta, Ray Liotta's character, he like goes off the deep end. He's got all these like side chicks, but then he's like living with them, and like the bosses come in and they're like, "Here's the deal: you're moving back in with your wife. These ladies are going away, and we're closing down this apartment. Do you understand?" And he's like, "Well, no, I really." And they're like, "No, yeah." <laughs> like so, even in a mob culture, which has these like loose connections with Roman Catholicism and other things, like pilfering some of the nice things about Christianity for like gang member culture, which is not good. Mm -hmm. But even in that context, it's like, that really is a picture of what should happen. What's interesting though, is the rates, all those ladies who say, well, what about, you know, abusive husbands? Actually, I think the data shows what about abusive wives? Exactly. Like who, who's going to hold these wives accountable? Dude, you would be shocked. Like, yeah, the data says that like, a lot of times, more than men, the wives are the abuser. That's right. Okay, that's true. Yes. That data is out there. Yes. But then it's interesting. Like I've had these instances in counseling, um, not so much at this church, but in the past while pastoral counseling, where it's like, they'd be like, oh yeah, we have some domestics in our past. And I was like, oh, okay. And my assumption was like, he hit her, you know? Mm -hmm. and they're like, it was like 80% of the time it was her. Yeah women would get mad and start like hitting their husband, trying to run him over with cars, like you name it. So yeah, that would be my question. It's like, okay, well also who's going to hold the ladies accountable? Because you need, you actually need it from both, both sides. And, and that's where I would say, yeah, don't, gosh, like threatening to leave. Uh, I actually, you know, like I knew a lot of guys who like grew up in those situations, right? Where it was like, Husband and wife are always doing the ring toss and threatening to leave each other. And it's like, <laughs> the ring toss. that's like the worst environment imaginable. And you're advocating that. No. The, the women's abuse of men, physical abuse is, is the dirty secret that people who do family counseling don't ever want to talk about. Like they went like, no, yeah. It's like, oh, you know, they'll talk to the men. just like, yeah, she hits me. Like, what is a man supposed to say about that? Right, like you call the police, and the police are like, "Defend yourself." It's like, really, like how? How am I supposed to do that? Because if I lay a finger on her, I'm the one getting dragged away, but she can beat me with a with a pan, and I can't. It's a really dangerous situation. And I get women on Twitter coming at me about abuse, like, "Well, how do women abuse men?" I'm like, "Do you know how women abuse men emotionally and spiritually? Like, have you seen the way that women's words can just cut men and boys, especially? Like, is that not a real thing?" And they don't want to really acknowledge that as well. And so this, this issue, this is why I was so interested in having this conversation with you is like, 
women's sin is not just immodesty. Like women's sin is is no. doing real violence to the to the the men in their lives and to women in their lives. Like women can do very meaningful violence, and we're just not good at talking about it. That's a problem. Well, big time. Like this is something I have to you know do more research on. But you know, we, sexuality is like the one out front and center. It's like easy. Yeah. It's honestly like so easy to identify that it's an easy target. But but I think one of the more interesting ones would be a particular female sin of manipulation. Women are uniquely masterful at manipulating emotions, particularly in men. At I think about the way women create passive aggressive environments in workplaces, like bureaucracy and corporations are like predominantly feminine in that way, effeminate. Very much. But like there's no direct confrontation. Um, the number of meetings where you're like afterwards, you get like everybody CC'd, the whole CC game, the whole, you know, I'm going to copy everybody in the department when I criticize you, but I won't say anything to your face. To your face, I'll be like, oh, Will, yeah, no, I great performance. Hope you enjoy that email when you get back to your desk. Uh, yeah. It, everything is passive. So I, I, I think, yeah, looking at the way women do that, uh, naggy words, how they undercut people, undercut their men, that, that stuff just gets to be vicious. Uh, but like you said, like not talked about. But we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to have that conversation. We don't, we don't, un, we only understand violence in a purely materialistic sense. We don't understand violence in a, in a spiritual, emotional sense. Like once it starts manifesting into thrown fists and stuff like that, like, yeah, that we can see and understand. But we live, like you said, in this culture of gossip, effeminacy, which is emotional, spiritual violence, which is manipulation. And because, um, because our culture worships women, as I said at the start, you know, bow the knee to the almighty woman. And maybe we said this, I talked about this beforehand, the feminist theology that says women are the oppressed class throughout all, all of history. So we bow to the knee to them in idolatry. And if we, are wor- if we as a culture are worshiping women, how do we hold that which we worship accountable? You can't. It works the other way. And so as men start to stand up and stop bowing the knee, all the hatred starts pouring in. And that's what you're getting. There's pouring millions and millions of impressions like I'm standing it up and I'm not bowing the knee to feminist theology. And then you really see it. Big time. Well, yeah. And I think especially, I, I have had some posts blow up, like hair length post was kind of big. The um, bat shaming, like this is the other one yeah. where it just drives me nuts. Like I refuse to worship that which is fat, ugly, and disgusting. And wow. Yeah. I'm, I mean, <laughs> well done. You have all these companies where they like know what they're doing, but they're like Gatorade did it where it's like, it was actually in yoga pants, but it was like a black lady doing yoga and she's oh, like, yeah. I don't know, like 200 pounds overweight. And they're like, fit comes in all shapes and sizes. I'm like, okay, first of all, <laughs> that is not healthy. Like any medical establishment, you know why it's called morbid obesity? Because it will kill you. Yeah. Like it's not good. It leads to high blood pressure, high cholesterol, like the whole gamut of like, you're going to die sooner. So it's like not good. Everybody knows it's not good. Then they parade it out there and it's like, you have to celebrate this as a fit, healthy lifestyle. I'm like, no, I refuse to do that. You know? And and that's why I think when you think about like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 
his precept was live not by lies. They always try to get you to swallow little lies, you know? And, and so that's where you have to start pushing back. And like, in one way, like that's like the model for my Twitter feed is like, no, I refuse to say that morbidly obese women are attractive. I will not say that, you know? And again, you go back to like practical advice. I think this is why our stuff has stuck where it's like, you know, just going through like lovingly, but through like situations where you're like, you're counseling somebody and you're like, well, my husband doesn't find me as attractive after pregnancy. I'm like, well, you put on like a hundred pounds and you didn't lose it. And that's putting a lot of strain on your marriage. So here's the deal. There's multiple ways that you can get help and lose weight. But... I mean, like having honest conversations. I remember early in our marriage, my wife said to me, like, she's a great woman. She was like, you find me less attractive when I'm like after pregnancy, after I'm like overweight from being pregnant. And I'm like, yes, definitely. I'm just being honest. Like, yeah. but, but this is our culture where like, you can't be honest with people and say like, well, my wife isn't attracted to me. I'm like, bro, you're 200 pounds overweight. That's like objectively not attractive. It also complements like complicates like stamina and all those other things. So yeah, like if we can cultivate lives of truth speaking on, you know, just even if it's on the little stuff, right? You you start doing that and you realize you're like telling the truth more and more often. And then the world around you becomes slightly a better place. Like this is the funny thing. The number of people who've been messaging me, uh, text message, you know, Twitter, whatever. And they're like, thank you for saying that. Like everybody knows that's true. Like you can't talk about yoga pants. I, I tell the story, you know, but it, it's funny. Like when pagan dudes are like, oh man, I love yoga pants. Like in bro conversation, right? Not on social media. Mm-hmm. But they'll be like, I love yoga pants. I'm like, why? I'm really curious why. <laughs> Because you can see everything. And you're like, okay, well, I'm just saying the, that thing out loud that we all know. And then calling people to, like, like you said, you're basically just taking their little idol into the public square and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And it makes people mad, but that's okay. That's the point. Yeah about, yeah. about the obesity issue, I wrote a series on Instagram called Obesity, Christianity, and Relationships, a three-part series. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. Oh, yeah. It's my most popular, my most popular posts ever. And really? Yeah. And in, and in that series, I said that I think the health, the angle of trying to say it's not healthy is, is a losing battle for Christians. It's like this, these posts are explicitly written for Christians. I said, the, the true heart of the matter is, is that if you're obese as a man or a woman in relationship or wanting to be in relationship, you are, you are in sin because you are failing to be able to carry out your God-ordained duties as a husband or wife. So if a, if a, if a God-ordained duties as a husband, as Fody Bauckham says, I think he says, priest, prophet, protector, and provider. I think those are his four yep. Ps. Like, first of all, how can you adequately protect your family if you, can't, if you can't run 50 yards? How can you provide if you're getting exhausted by the end of the day? How can you model, yep. how can you model a godly authority if your gut's hanging over your your, your, your pants, you know what I mean? And, and how can you embody and embody godliness at all? If you look like if you're living in sin and gluttony and for women, like how can you be a wife, you know, providing love and care and, and allowing your husband to experience godly desire. If you're overweight as well, how can you possibly disciple your children? What are you discipling them in? 
obesity is total abandonment and abdication of all the godly duties of men and women in Christian relationships. And that was the angle yes. that I that I took. And and because I think it I think it matters. And I got a I got I got some hate for it, but I got a lot of love for those posts. Because I, I and people didn't want to hear it, but on some level they got to hear it from a moral position. Because health is like, what does it mean to be healthy? Uh, I don't, it doesn't matter. Though I'm not, I'm not interested in what the CDC defines as healthy. Healthy. I'm interested in what God says is healthy, and He wrote yes. a book about it. Yeah, and I think the big part of it too is like, I think about practical stuff. You end up having to counsel people on. Like a guy comes to you and he's like, "Hey, I want to get married. I'm 30." And you're looking at him and you're like, well, okay, I'm going to shoot you straight, bro. You dress like a slob, you stink, and you're like, again, 150 pounds overweight. So my advice to that guy literally would be, okay, you need to lose weight. You need to shower regularly. I want you to go down to the local grocery store. There is an aisle. It has like fragrances. You don't need to be worried about seed oils or any of that stuff right now. Like the fragrance is not what's going to kill you. Like you need to smell good. Like find a way to smell good. If you're in like a health nut community, fine. Go buy some essential oils or something to rub on yourself. But it's like just working on some of those basics. This is where we've gone so far astray. And what is like the Christian community telling those guys, right? They're telling those guys, Every shape and size can be loved and blah, 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 blah. It's like, but not true though, right? And that actually used to be like pretty normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, pretty normal in culture to like, now we'd call it fat shaming, but it's like, I mean, my kids have gone through stages. Yeah, my kids have gone through stages where they're like, why is that man so fat? And I'm like, well, I don't know the full reason. But, you know, we need to take care of our bodies. This is a good reminder, you know, to uh, take care of your body. What does that mean? Well, you're going to have to physically challenge your body, you know, some form of exercise. You're going to have to think about the things that you put into your body. Um, not rocket surgery, but you've got to, it, it can be hard. You've got to discipline yourself for sure. And this is how far modernity has crept into the lives of so many people that we can't even say what a thing is like you're dressed you're dressed like a prostitute don't do that what like you're 150 pounds overweight you're fat what it's like these are objective truths that we see with our <laughs> eyes just it's just true yes. and 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 I, there's a way to deliver these truths in a way that's that's designed to wound that has too much of our own self in it and there's a way to deliver it in a way that's godly. And that, that's, I mean, you have to be linguistically adept as a man to be able to do that. But that's part of the call is to be able to deliver these truths, speak truth in love, right? And, and that's, a, that's a skill that we're learning to develop because it's on the battlefield at the same time. And there's a way in which people need to be willing to be receptive to these truths, not because I said so, but because God says so. And because God said it, that's actually the path to happiness to fulfillment, to fruitfulness, follow his laws. It'll be fine. So that's, and that's, that's the, there's the carrot and the stick approach. Like what's the carrot? Yes. We actually promise yeah. the carrot. Like here's the carrot. Again, there's a book about it. Well, isn't it so interesting too? Like the, the big fad, I think with the manosphere, when that really started taking off all the Jordan Peterson stuff, Joe Rogan, what's really interesting to me is it took evolutionary psychologists basically 
and some anthropologists, but mainly evolutionary psychologists who are just watching the way people work. Yeah. And they were like, here are some observations. Hold, hold your phone. Men and women, they're different. <laughs> but like to your point, you could have just believed the Bible all along. Like we we're so advanced now that we have these, you know, in-depth research studies that are like, okay, here's the deal. Men's bodies are physically stronger. We spent millions of dollars on this project and we have determined. <laughs> yes. And it's like, it's so stupid because it's like common sense. We have all known that forever. I mean, literally it's like, okay, ask Matt Reynolds. You have two, a man and a woman, two people. You're going to give them programming for weightlifting. They're the same age and they're the same height. Do you give them the same programming? No, you don't. Because you know that physically the guy can do a lot more faster and build muscle faster. That is a rule of the universe. You don't need like a really in-depth study to figure that one out. You could also like read Proverbs 20. The glory of young men is their strength, right? Women are daughters of Eve. They, you, the, the mother of all living. They're mothers. Like that's what is funny to me, even in my own trajectory is like, I grew up and sort of like we had a household and mom stayed at home and dad worked. And I was like, oh, this is kind of weird. I don't know why that is. And you go to school and you get indoctrinated mm. in the leftist, you know, progressive thought. And I start reading all this stuff and I'm like, reading Jordan Peterson, then the Bible, then, then all this other stuff about masculinity and femininity. And you're like, wait a minute, men and women are different. Mm. Yes, we're coming back to reality. It's just weird to watch that circle. Uh, and and then yeah, even the uh, when we get into it, what we getting into it with the guy from the Washington Post, like talking about styles, like they want to, they, they will go through the whole history of like the sports blazer, and his his final argument was, well, the reality is the way I am looking at a photo of you with a sports blazer on, Eric, and the way that the fabric is tight against your biceps could be considered immodest and tempting to women, and I'm like, um, indeed, my biceps are tempting to women, but you're wrong. <laughs> I think that guy is admitting that he was tempted by my biceps, but <laughs> I don't know. I can't be certain. But yeah, you look at that and you're like, come on. Yeah, Shane Morris, by the way, he, he responded to this and it was so good because he said he was like, come on. Everybody knows that yoga pants are designed to be provocative. Like that, the whole, like you were saying before, like the whole like shape lifting of your butt. Why does it do that? And then like everybody knows, but then we're going to deny it, you know? You're going to be like, oh, it's not sexual though. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's because you want every guy in the gym to stare at your like big booty. Like that's why you do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think that, uh, if you said that uh, as earlier, culture is the externalization of religion. What is our American Western cultural religion right now? You know, sex and violence sums it up. Well, right. Yeah. And I mean, think about this too, Will. Like, Every pagan culture has a sex cult and it's usually front and center. So like only sometimes is it heterosexual cult. (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. Rarely. Yes. Yeah. It's usually, it's usually like both, (laughs) which is disturbing in its own right. (laughs) But continue, continue the the, the public, our sex cult is in public now and it's not, it's not heterosexual. But, and then you also mark it by like how offended people get. Yeah. At it, it's not like 
I remember in the 90s, right, when people were like, oh, you know, don't ask, don't tell. That was kind of the military thing under Bill Clinton. So it was like, yeah, be homosexual, but like, sort of like what, what you do in your bedroom doesn't matter. You know, just don't tell me about it. And we, all the conservatives back then, I remember like, especially like the James Dobsons, they were like, no, this is a slippery slope. Well, mm. yeah, now it's like, because of the amount of shame caused by sexual sin at a cultural level, they parade the same sins out into the public square and they demand that you bow down and approve of them and worship them. And they do that because they have a seared conscience and they are actually intensely guilty in their conscience, which is why they're demanding that everyone to the last man, woman, and child sing their praise. And again, this goes back to like when you take the altar of Baal, you know, Gideon takes his father's altar into the public square. God tells him, if you want to win the war against the Midianites, you have to destroy this first. Well, you think about that. It's like, how many people I've had in the last couple of days saying like, well, this isn't the fight. Let's just worry about cutting taxes and, you know, being good conservatives and raising military spending and blah, 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 blah. Build the wall. This actually is the fight. If you can't repent of your sexual sins, you have no hope of winning the culture war. And so, yeah, let's start there. By the way, the, like you see the old pictures, the altars of Baal, it's like a long penis pole. Oh, it's like, so he's like destroying a large wooden penis in the public square. And it's like, well, this case was, it wasn't a large wooden penis. It was just a large wooden statue of yoga pants. <laughs> but what do they say? Yeah. What do they say to Gideon? He tears it down and they're like, they tell Gideon's father, we need to kill your son. And I love Gideon's father's response. He says, let Baal contend for himself. Of course, Gideon means contends with Baal. So it's like this play on words, but like, who are the heroes in our day? This goes back to the first Samuel and David. Who are the heroes in our day going to be the men that people follow? They're going to be the Gideons. Gideon was the one contending with the idols of the day. Like you want to win men, you want to win the culture war, you want to make progress, you want to stop being oppressed by the secular regime, be a Gideon. Be the one whose name literally means contends with the feminazi gods, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's what he was doing. And Baal worship, by the way, it's like a sex cult. That's why it's a penis. It's fertility. Like, it's the same things keep happening and they're demonic, but the same things keep happening over and over again. And again, you're, you're never going to find freedom from this until you stand up to it and confront it in the public square. This is what I think so many Christians don't understand. They're like, Eric, why can't you just quietly disagree? What does that why mean? Can't you just like, why can't you just like be in your house and be like, well, I don't like that tweet, but I, I don't, I'm not going to say anything. Shake like, my head. Number one. No, I don't like it. Number one, because I'm a man. And number two, because like this is what Christians do. We say no in the public sphere. You know, this was the whole COVID thing. Well, why can't you just like keep your beliefs to yourself? I'm like, I don't know. Did you ask the LGBT people that? Right. They're not keeping their beliefs to themselves. Why do I have to do that? I don't have to do that. And the other thing I'll say is like that on being a shock jock, right? I get that a lot too. Like, why do you have to be such a shock jock? Pastor Dan said this the other day. He was like, you know how many times Jesus or Paul, yeah. like Paul literally would intentionally start a riot between the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he's like, 
actually, the real reason I'm here is because of dun 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 the resurrection. And they're like, we're going to kill each other. You know, like Paul, he didn't have to say that. He knew how to start a riot. In fact, there's many riots and acts, and Paul's like in the middle of them. Yep. And, and and I think he understood like you have to like you get people's attention. It wasn't he was not saying untrue things, you know, but you figure out what the idol is and you poke it. Yeah. I mean, what did what did Nathan do? Walked right into <clears throat> David's chambers and be like, "You and your sexual sin." Refuses to explain. Leaves. <laughs> See you later. See ya. <laughs> Drops the mic. Walks out. And David's like, "Oh, what have I done?" And then writes a whole bunch of psalms, right? And so. This is this is the thing that I think men are being, you know, Hosea as well. This is this is the thing that men are being called to be. And I get that it's scary. I get that many want to retreat into like, I've got the guns and I'm just gonna wait for the collapse and do Warlord of the Wasteland, because that's a violence that I understand. Like, no, no, sorry, you need to be you need to be skilled in your apologetics and discerning in your mind and be willing to fight the cultural war in your workplace, but also in your own home. And I was explaining this to a man recently, you know, who is coming under fire from his own family. He's recently attained public prominence. And so he's feeling the pressure from members of his extended family. And I explained to him, I said, you know, this is how a lot of male content creators get taken down. It's not because they're getting it from the outside. It's that they don't know where their wife is at next to them, or they don't know who's talking to their wife and influencing them like don't like what he said there. And then, you know, the, the whisper's like, no, honey, I don't know. Auntie whatever's kind of upset and she was going to invite us to Christmas. But that female manipulation social influence <laughs> goes right into a man's bedroom right there yes. where he feels it very acutely. And so like, you got to know that your wife is ride or die for you with this. This is, this is headship. This is leadership. Oh. And this is, I've got, uh, you know, this is a clean conscience. This is pastoral submission for the man himself. So that he knows that he can fight this battle and that his wife is next to him as a, as a unit, one flesh. But a lot of men, they don't have that. Oh, it's so important. Like we talk about a wife as a helper. But yeah, that ride or die. I mean, we were laughing about this. My wife had received several text messages throughout the, this oh, Twitter storm. The best. That's and awesome. They were all like, yeah, of the flavor of like, um, oh, honey, like... You need to get out of your abusive relationship. What? Like I'm praying for you. Oh, and my wife, I said, what did you say? And she said, well, to the one person I said, uh, please help send money. Here's my GoFundMe. And she's like, yeah, I thought we could start a GoFundMe. And then we'll actually just funnel all the money. To-. And I was like, babe, we're not doing that. <laughs> That's right or That's die. That's funny. That's right or die. Yeah, she's right or die. But uh, it is just funny because like you, you do. You have all these women who are like, they assume that you must be oppressed and they're going to try and get get through to your wife. We've had family members in the past, like we make a family decision. I made the decision. Of course, I asked, you know, my kids and I asked my wife, I said, what do you think about this? You know, for how, like, how do I lead you well? What's your feedback? Um, you know, I, I want to know. I, I'm going to make the decision that's best for the family. But, you know, you, John Calvin said this, like a man who doesn't consider his wife at all is a monster, right? right. I'm not going to do that. So, but, the, but then people, like I had family members who were like, they would like try to get my wife alone by herself and they would be like, oh honey, like, is this a good move for you? And my wife is always like, it's what my husband's decided and I support him 100%. 
I didn't ask about your husband, honey. Is this good for you? And my wife is like, she just gets irate with people. But it's funny because she's like, literally, she, she will tell this to people and they don't understand it. But she'll say, you know when I'm happiest? And they're like, when, when are you happiest, honey? She's like, I'm happiest when I'm obeying my husband. Oh, man. And like the feminist mind just melts down. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, is she, is she in the Taliban? <clears throat> it's like, what? If you, like, what happens if you don't obey? She's like, I dishonored God. The right answer. Like, it's just so crazy that people think that this is uh, so oppressive. And yes, I, I would go back to something we talked about earlier. Could, could you uh, abuse patriarchy? Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, people beat their wives all the time. I, not that that's funny, right. but they beat their wives all the time and they're not Christians. That's right. Like, I, I would wager that like most of the abuse in America is not coming from patriarchal reform Christendom. Like, I don't know the data here, right. Will, but I'm pretty sure that's true. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a, that seems to be, that's a problem in those, in those worlds as well. And what I, what I tell people is like, look, we are a fallen, sinful, you know, species. That's what we are. And we can take any tool and turn it into a weapon. And that's just, oh, that's time. what we do, right? You can take Christianity or patriarchy or a hammer or a screwdriver or an ice cream scoop and you can turn it into a weapon. And so it's not in the nature of the thing itself. It's in the application yeah. of it. And again, this is why you need masculine accountability. This is why you need brotherhood. Uh, by the way, I'm just picturing, you know, this woman talking to your wife, like, think twice if you need help. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's basically what these conversations are. Like, does your husband read your texts? No, I show him all of them <laughs> willingly. That's so good. It's so crazy, dude. So good. <laughs> I've kept you. I've kept you for for a while, but I do want to ask you about the event you've got coming up with New Christendom Press. If you if you have just another minute yeah. to talk about that, yeah, definitely. So we've got a, a conference, uh, June eighth through tenth, New Christendom Press conference. Uh, we've got a few speakers. Obviously, I'll be speaking. Brian Sauvey. Uh, and Dan Burkholder, but we've also invited uh, Matt Reynolds will be there from Barbell Logic. Uh, we've got Toby Sumter. He'll be speaking there. Uh, we've got the guys from American Moment, uh, Nick Solheim. Oh, and wow. Then I just met also, him. Yeah, Nick's a really, really awesome dude. Uh, doing a lot of good work in Washington, D.C. And then uh, new, new founding, Nate Fisher and Santiago Plago uh, will hopefully be there as well. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of good people, I think, to connect with. We're We're really... Uh, focusing on the conference, uh, you are the plan, and um, kind of looking at this cultural moment and saying, like, look, you, you start with yourself. God can use you, but that's really where you want to focus on your sanctification. Um, and I, I think part of it is because we've noticed in sort of like, not that we're specifically an alt right movement, but somewhere on that spectrum over there in right land. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, but you notice in a lot of these circles, like. You know, I even noticed it with the yoga pants thing. Like, there were all these guys coming to my defense. And, like, one of the people on the left was, like, screenshotting. But they were like, you conservative guy. Like, you realize that, like, you've liked all these, like, porn accounts. And I can see your likes publicly. And it was kind of like, that's actually, that's actually probably something you should repent of. Mm. And you're not on good ground to fight when you're liking porn accounts or porn-adjacent accounts on Twitter. 
So I think what we're saying is like, let's establish a core, let's establish a base, let's establish a good network of guys. Like, you know, we're all kind of doing a lot of the same work. Um, but when you network and you get together with other guys, you know, you're helping God willing to form some of these future male bonds, um, people who can fight together, build together. Uh, we're going to need each other. And, um, you know, I've said, you know, it's like the mighty men. Like, you, I don't need 3,000 guys. I just need like 200 good ones. Uh, people who are really faithful to God. And so that's what we're going to try and do is equip uh, guys for that, inspire them, encourage them. And, uh, you know, we got, like I said, we got Matt Reynolds. So we're also looking at our camp and saying like, we should probably learn how to get physically strong. Yeah. That would actually be really good for us. Stop posting about, you know, the ideal shape of a pastor being a pumpkin. <laughs> it's not. That's not good. Um, that's what somebody says who isn't ready for a fight. But we want to be ready for every kind of physical, emotional, spiritual test that we'll be given and um, be able to weather those storms well, shoulder the load, all that. So, yeah, I think it'll be a great time to connect. We've got some uh, Salt and Strings Butchery will be there. They're providing, a, I think it's going to be a ribeye dinner. Uh, wow. We'll have some smokes, uh, some cigars, and uh, some libations. So I think it will be a, a good time for guys to connect and connect with like-minded gentlemen. I really want to encourage men listening to go because I was just mm. at the fatherhood intensive this past weekend in Washington with uh, C.R. Wiley, Nate Spearing, and Rory Groves, and uh, that was that was an all male all men conference about fatherhood, and the masculine fellowship that I felt there was like. Mm. I've been looking for this, like in this concentrated form f since I came in, since I came to Christ yes. and to step yes. into that, I was like, oh, it was a really transformative, genuinely transformative moment for me to step into this and feel like, cause again, I can be isolated in my own apartment dealing with the, dealing yep. with the world and stuff, but to really step into it in this con and I have friends here, of course, in the church as well, but to step into it in a concentrated way with all these men getting to know each other and hashing out ideas was very powerful. So I hope men listening will, will attend the conference because this this exact thing needs to be happening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the fellowship, the friendship. Um, yeah, this uh, a BAP would call it like the marauding gangs of men or something like that. But yes. uh, yeah, just the amazing things that can happen when you uh, get together with other men, like-minded, share passion, that sort of thing. Excellent, excellent. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I really appreciate the generosity of time and and, and openness and, and honesty about so much going on. Yeah. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, absolutely, Will. I appreciate it. Definitely, uh, it's been a great conversation on my end as well. I've I've enjoyed uh, getting to follow your platform as well. It's cool to see. Uh, I was discouraged there for a while, I think, with Red Pill stuff because it seemed like it was all tanking. Yeah. And then, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something like that, uh, Michael, had, he's like, well, you got to check out Will. He's doing some great stuff. And uh, that's been really encouraging, uh, really important work. So thank, thank you. you as well. well. I appreciate I appreciate hearing that. I'll send you some information about some other things I'm working on. Yeah. But in the meantime, where would you like to send men to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to ericcon.com. That's E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. Uh, you can find my podcast, most of the ways to connect with me. You can also follow on Twitter, of course, Eric, E-R-I-C underscore at C-O-N-N. So at Eric underscore con, C-O-N-N. And then, of course, you can go to uh, newchristendompress.com and learn more about the conference there. Thank you so much, Eric. I really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Will.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.